Your son, he's gone. He was weak and foolish, like his father. So I destroyed him. Hello, and welcome to the Weak and Foolish Movie Podcast. My name is Mike Tang, and with me are my fellow podcasters, Job Ang. Hello. Albert Liu. Hi, everyone. And Paul Shu. Hello. If this is your first time joining us, we are a group of cinephile friends who love talking about movies and decided to record our conversations about film. In this episode, we will be discussing the global cinematic and cultural phenomenon that is Barbenheimer. And if you're not familiar with Barbenheimer, let's say you're listening to this at a later date, uh, it is essentially the simultaneous theatrical release of writer-director Greta Gerwig's Barbie and writer-director Christopher Nolan's Oppenheimer on the same opening weekend in late July of 2023. Leading up to their release date, the internet essentially went viral with hype and memes about the two polar opposite films releasing at the same time and was touted as the movie event of the year. What's crazy about this was that this wasn't some kind of marketing scheme put out by Warner Brothers and Universal Pictures. This was purely an internet sensation that happened to work in both films' favor and it raised both of their profiles considerably. Normally on this podcast, we would probably dedicate one episode to the new Greta Gerwig film and one episode to the latest Christopher Nolan film. But since both Barbie and Oppenheimer are now forever linked by this enormous moment in cinematic and box office history, we just had to do it this way. We had to do a double feature episode. Um, we're going to be discussing Barbie first and then Oppenheimer. And in our discussion of each film, we will be first talking about general non-spoiler thoughts. And then we're going to be discussing the film in full spoiler mode. Now, uh, usually for our, our spoiler discussions in, in this podcast, we usually walk through each act of the film and discuss it in chronological order of events of the plot. But since this is a double feature episode on two very important films, we decided for the sake of time and energy, we would forego our usual spoiler format and we just are going to have unstructured conversations about each film in spoiler detail. All right, so let us begin with our non-spoiler discussion on Greta Gerwig's Barbie. Hey, Barbie. Can I come to your house tonight? Sure. I don't have anything big planned, just a giant blowout party with all the Barbies and plant choreography and a bespoke song. You should stop by. So cool. You can find me under the lights, diamonds under my eyes. This is the best day ever. It is the best day ever. So is yesterday, and so is tomorrow, and every day from now until forever. Yeah. You guys ever think about dying? All right, Job. Let's hear from you. Uh, what did you think of Barbie? Actually, before you begin, uh, I gotta say, we're we're four guys on this podcast, right? Uh, we're essentially <laughs> the, uh, you know, some of us joked before the episode. We're essentially the uh, boardroom of Mattel, right? Uh, we're, we're just offering a couple guys' opinions on this uh, on this movie, and there are a lot of feminist ideas, uh, a lot of ideas about the female experience in this film, and we can only comment on so much. Right. So we're right. Uh, we're coming from a certain perspective and we have talked about uh, doing a follow up episode with uh, a couple of female guests to get their unique take on this, because obviously it's, it's saying a lot about 
about them and about about what they've experienced. So uh, I just wanted to put that up out there before we begin. All right. So sorry, Job. Uh, let's hear. Uh, yeah, your thoughts on general thoughts on Barbie. Yeah. Hey, well, well said, Mike. And and I, yeah, I just want to echo that and say we are humbly bringing our true opinions and our true selves to this, um, knowing that this movie isn't necessarily made for us as a demographic. And that's kind of my uh, experience. Uh, this is another great quirky Greta Gerwig special. Uh, coming in, I had the very strong feeling that Barbie wasn't made at all for my, me and my demographic. I'm not just male, but I'm also Asian. Um, so going <laughs> into this film, my expectations were fairly low in terms of something I could get out of it. Um, but after having seen it, I, I came away enjoying it. Uh, it's campy. It's kitschy. It's delightfully silly. It's uh, everything you would expect uh, until it gets unexpectedly emotional in some parts. And I just had no awareness that that was going to happen. I, I didn't really watch the trailers for this movie. I didn't really read up on it or track the uh, the history of the development for it or any of the interviews. So I was pretty much going in blind, expecting like something like lighthearted and comedic, but um, coming away with something pretty heartfelt and, and resonant. Um, but, but while this film has a lot going for it in the positive, I do feel like some of the way the story resolves um, veered a little too convenient and um, overly self-indulgent in the end uh, in its messaging for its own good. I think it went a little, it laid it on pretty thick uh, in terms of the messaging, um, which I guess I'm not too surprised by, but uh, it was a little, again, not being the target audience, it was a little off-putting by the end, but overall a very solid film in my opinion. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you for sharing your thoughts, Job. Albert, what are your thoughts on Barbie? Yeah, I, I really loved uh the film um is it my favorite Greta Gerwig movie probably not I, I think I, I'd probably like the other movies she's done that I've seen more than this movie but you know could it possibly be my favorite movie based on you know a toy line or a franchise I, I I think it could be you know judging it uh with that context I think unlike most movies um uh, about you know t that are adapted from toys or, or or cartoons. This one seems to be very aware of the weight the Barbie toy line has carried throughout generations of uh for for you know girls and women and and I think we've seen all those um, Instagram stories of people going after moms or groups of girls going and having a date night to see this movie and really getting something out of it so I, I do feel like the movie was aware of that and I think for the most part it juggled all the things that come with that very very well and never forgot to be entertaining um, when they needed to be which is most of the time and 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 poignant when it needed to be uh, particularly to what Job was referring uh, uh, by its end I definitely uh, feel like that strength of it also sort of somewhat contributed to its biggest weakness in the in the sense that it does carry a lot 
and you do feel like the movies shift very quickly from one thing to another. So, you know, unless we're talking about certain scenes in the third act, uh, you do feel like um, uh, you do you do feel like uh, you know you're never some ideas are really good, but they're never given enough um, you know a chance to breathe. Uh, so they move on to another. It's almost like she's directing. And I, well, I, I guess this is to be applauded, but Gerwig was directing about sort of a sequel of mine, although I highly, highly would be surprised if a sequel wasn't announced at this point. But um, overall, I think it's a uh, tremendous achievement for a uh, adaptation of a toy line. Uh, and I also think that... Um, it's a, uh, you know, it, it's definitely a bona fide cultural phenomenon. Uh, definitely, in my opinion, one of the most enjoyable movies of the year. Yeah, awesome. Thanks, Albert. Uh, and Paul, general thoughts on Barbie? Uh, yeah, so I would say I didn't love this movie, but I liked it. Uh, I think it's easily the funniest movie of the year so far. Um, and I know this word gets tossed around a lot, but I, I would say it's a very bold movie because when I think of a Barbie movie, I don't like, I mean, before seeing it, like I, I had no idea what to expect, right? Like it's a movie about toys, uh, and from our, you know, past experiences of watching movies that are about toys, right? Like Lego movie, toy story. It's like, you, you don't know what to expect with a story. Right. And I think with this one, I never would have imagined that a story about the Barbie movie would be like this. Uh, and a lot of credit goes to Greta Gerwig and, of course, her partner, Noah Baumbach, about telling a very fascinating story, uh, probably one that is very timely and needs to be told in our generation. Uh, but I, similar to Job, I think that the message kind of gets muddied when it's it just kind of fights with itself i feel like it, it contrasts a little bit based off of like the the jovial nature of like oh look at how silly it is for us to be dolls and we're toys living in this toy world right and then it gets surprisingly philosophical uh and it talks a lot about you know womanhood and and feminism and those are all things that sh i think should be talked about uh, in movies. And certainly there's a platform for that, but it is hard to juggle those two, um, like have both of those be both funny and also poignant. So it's, I, I applaud Gerwig's effort for doing it. It's it's easily my least favorite Gerwig film. Um, and I think, I, I mean, that's, and that's not a knock against her because I mean, I haven't seen her first uh, directed movie I think it's called Nights and Weekends but I mean Lady Bird I thought was incredible and Little Women is like my de facto Christmas movie now so I love her directorial style I just I just think she's one of the best directors out there right now um, so I mean she's a great though, actress too yeah yeah she's a great actress too Frances Ha like she's fantastic in that um, so yeah I mean I think it's it's safe to say that like the four of us were excited we're actually excited for this movie not for the reasons that 95% of the people were excited to see Barbie like 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 we said like none of us played with the toys at least I don't think so but all of us 
really like Greta Gerwig for her previous work. So, I mean, we were all excited to see how she could turn a movie about this mainline toy and make it something like have her own spin on it. So, uh, I mean, I, I definitely think that it's, uh, it, it made me feel like both happy and also like, oh, okay, like that uh, it's getting a little bit like into the eye roll territory. But I, I, I will say like, ultimately I'm more happy about the success of this movie than I am about how I felt about the movie overall. Like, I'm so glad that it's probably going to hit a billion dollars. I think that's so cool. Uh, especially for Greta Gerwig, like, I feel like if any, um, just like, you know, like showing yourself to like, the main like Hollywood, like industry, like, like, this is a great way to come out and be like, yeah, I, I'm for real, you know? Um, so I, I, I'm really happy for her. And I'm, I'm excited for the people who went to see this movie. But yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, like, I, I don't think about this movie that much now, now that we've seen it. Um, uh, but I mean, it was still fun. It was, it was still a lot of fun to watch. Um, and uh, obviously, uh, shout out to Margot Robbie and Ryan Gosling, the two best parts of the film. I got to add, though, uh, Paul, you just reminded me uh, that th this movie definitely had like life-size sets of, of toy sets that I was just too afraid to say as a kid, man. That's really cool. <laughs> I don't want that. So. <laughs> yeah, I, I know, of course I didn't. I mean, I, I didn't have Barbie toys, but there were some sets where I'm like, damn, I would really want that. You know, that's <laughs> that looks cool. So yeah, yeah. And it hits like a a certain level of nostalgia. Like if we all watched like TV Saturday morning cartoons growing up, there were always Barbie commercials and stuff like that. It it definitely like speaks to a a bit of like a piece of our childhoods, right? Like in the collective of people our age and maybe even older. Um, so, so it was kind of cool on that front. Um, I just wanted to say that. <laughs> no, that, that's a really great point though. It's, it's kind of like, uh, you know, my wife uh, take drag my wife to go see like the dark Knight, you know, and it's like, Hey, this is my childhood. <laughs> you know, I played with these action figures and all these toys. And now it's like being brought to life in a very mature way. Uh, I think it's like the reverse maybe of, of that. Um, yeah. I, I think a bar, the concept, the idea that they would actually come out and make a Barbie movie is pretty stupid. It's kind of like making a Lego movie. You know, I, I think both ideas seem kind of dumb on the page. It just seems like a cheap studio IP cash grab. Right. But uh, I think like the Lego movie, this is a, a very meaningful. And I think it's because out of all the directors out there, they picked uh, Greta Gerwig. And I, I agree with all of the points that have already been made about this movie. I think when it's about Barbie and about Ken and about their lives with other Barbies and Kens in Barbie land, I actually was really enjoying it. It was silly and fun and extreme, extremely weird. But when the movie tries to be meaningful and philosophical, which again, I do appreciate a lot. I, I think it overextends itself and actually ends up being very preachy without landing the emotional blows that I think it should have been feeling. And you know, again, I, I got to state this, like, I really appreciate Greta Gerwig's effort in trying to inject this kind of, uh, you know, philosophical discussion into uh, this film, this this huge, massive, like, IP 
uh, film. And they want to say something with this movie. You know, it's not like Fast and Furious where it's just like family, you know, <laughs> like there's more <laughs> that, that that they want to leave audiences with. I think that's it's so it's by that, you know, just looking at that from that, that perspective, it's, it's so much better than most movies of this type. Um, even though it is commendable. OK, I, I think the way that it was executed uh, fell flat, like I said, um, it were brought because uh, it relies so much on telling the audience rather than showing the audience. And we, we kind of mentioned this a lot in this podcast, but show not tell, but I think as a result, it feels too preachy and yeah, I'm, I'm always, I'm kind of mixed because I know it's, it's really hard to elegantly balance uh, like good storytelling with like all the studio mandates that come with big blockbuster movies. Uh, so, but I think so. I think overall, I was uh, coming out a little bit mixed uh, on this movie. Uh, I, to be honest, I started to check out at the halfway point. Maybe it was the jet lag I was experiencing, uh, but I just wasn't as into the second half as the first half. I wish it kind of worked a little bit differently. Um, but I got to say this: I think it hasn't been mentioned yet. But uh, Ryan Gosling's performance, I think he kicked it up several notches towards the end of the movie. And he is so hilarious and so committed to this role of Ken. And he just kept getting better and better as the movie went on. And I think by the third act, I think he, he comes out of his true form as a comedic actor. And so I think, uh, I think he kind of saved the movie for me. Like I wasn't, I was kind of like more on the negative side on this movie. And then Ryan Gosling just, I don't know. He just, ate up every scene at the end so yeah I, I totally agree with you mike i think uh he probably in many ways had the hardest job uh uh he had the hardest character to play because you know his can can on paper be a you know sort of a real dick right but it, it, so it takes a lot of skill i think to get to that sort of more nuanced portrayal of him as as sort of just a work of progress, I would say, right, which is exactly what that character really is. So, yeah, I totally agree in, in the sense that he is to be committed a lot for for what he did did with what could have honestly fallen apart if, if it had been like any other actor. Well, I don't know that for sure, but I kind of feel like it, that that would be the case. Yeah, I'm glad. I'm glad I'm not the only one. All right. Uh... So why don't we move into the spoiler uh, discussion starting now? No, no, you're still holding on. Let go. Like I said before, we're not going to talk about the plot of the movie. I mean, we might mention some things, you know, as we discuss the film, but it's going to be completely unstructured. Uh, we can all just bring one thing uh, to the table in this discussion, something that we appreciated, something that we thought could have been kind of could have worked better. I guess I, I'll just start. Okay. Um, for me, one thing I really wish that was a little bit better in this film was the world building. <laughs> I thought it was either unclear or it didn't make any sense at all. All right. So let me explain. We have Barbie land and the real world, right? And it, within the first 20 minutes of this movie, it's like, it's kind of clear. Okay. This movie is more or less like the Lego movie, right? Where there's people in the real world, they're playing with toys. And the movie we're watching is essentially what is being played out by the people, but the people in the real world and the, and their toys. And so we find out in this movie that stereotypical Barbie played by Margot Robbie, she's being 
uh, played around with in the real world by America Ferrer's character, Gloria. And this just brought up, you know, a bunch of questions that I don't think were clearly addressed in the movie. Like, what happens to Barbie when she is not being played with? Does her story continue? Does Barbie land come to a pause? Is there some kind of stasis that they that they all enter into? And what about all the other Barbie and Kens? You know, are they also being played with? Um, are they also being impacted by the real world? We don't get answers to these questions. Uh, we don't know how the interworkings of the Barbie land and real world. We don't. We don't, we don't know how it works. Um, you know, and also how the real world impacts Barbie land is not very clear, right? Uh, Barbie and Ken physically leave Barbie land, okay, and then they just become real people out of nowhere. And then they say that they don't have any genitalia. I, I thought this was really weird. And I try to just go along with it. But then it, it just opened up more questions for me. Like in the real world, when they create a new doll, is that a new character that's created in Barbie land? Does a new character just appear? Um, and, and what is Barbie land exactly? The CEOs and the boardroom, like they all seem to acknowledge the existence of Barbie land. But what is that? Is it like an experimental dream world that's created by Mattel and they just manifest these uh, ideas for dolls? Like, you know, so for every new rule they introduce in this movie, I think it creates three more unanswered questions that are just not, <laughs> that are just left unclear. And I, I guess we can we can guess and theorize all we want, right? But I think I think the movie should have done the work to make those things a little bit more clear. Did you guys have the same questions? Or... No, Mike, I did not have the same no. questions. I Great. <laughs> I, I didn't even think about that. I just was like, okay. Because <laughs> I think, you know, it, it's not really a world-building movie. It's I, I think its primary purpose was is to set some sort of parallel between the expectations that the Barbie line carries and that's Barbie land at versus, you know, the real world. This is, which is how they, um, you know, where, where all the characters sort of travel to, right? Barbie and Ken. So I, I think it's primary purpose is to sort of draw those two, two things, you know, in contrast to each other. So no, I didn't really think about the rules of the world, but I, I will say I, you know, I, I, I was marveling at the production design um, uh, of this movie. Um, if I can add add that, it's just, uh, it's really incredible how they just sort of blew up these sets, you know, and decided, well, what's going to work and what's not going to work. Uh, but it, it all worked for me, to be honest, like them sort of drinking you know, cups of coffee without anything coming out of it. And, and the way, you know, the homes work, it, it just looked like a giant version of, of, uh, right. Those places that we'd probably see around Toys R Us, you know, that one aisle maybe in the eighties or nineties, that was like super pink. And then we, you know, walk through and say, Oh, that's that. Um, so, uh, but yeah, that being said, I didn't really think too much about those questions. I know Toy Story may have like sort of conditioned us to say, "Oh, these are there are rules and stuff like that." And I well, was thinking of Small Soldiers as well. But yeah, I, I mean, I, I mean, yeah. I, I think about the Matrix, right? Or I think about I think <laughs> the about like, Matrix, or, or or another Warner Brothers property. Um, but I, I think about the Lego Movie, right? The Lego Movie, <laughs> excuse me, the Lego Movie had very clear rules uh, that they kind of, you kind of understand, oh, this is what we've been watching the whole time. 
And then the Lego, whatever is being played out in the Lego world is kind of like, um, you know, a representation of the conflict that the child playing the toys is having with the parent, right? That's essentially what's happening. Uh, or it's like a conflict that the, the kid is having with his uh, sister or mom or whatever. So uh, that it just makes sense in the Lego movie. Um, I, I think it would have, if they had made this a little bit more clear and stronger, I, I really think it would have helped the movie th thematically try to drive home what they're trying to say. Uh, but I think instead, if you're not clearly defining these, these rules, like America Ferreira's character Gloria, right? She kind of gets sidelined uh, at the end, even though it, it, the movie is actually essentially about her and about what she's going through in the real yeah, world. I That's agree with that. Yeah, right? I think That's, she is sort of the main character, right? Yeah, but then because they don't clearly define the rules and then at the end it just gets really loosey-goosey, they, they kind of just don't really address that anymore. I think it actually does a huge disservice to her and to the message of the of the movie. Yeah. Yeah. It I think it boils down to kind of the the storytelling like technique and how they set out to it, it's almost like what they would rather we focus in on. And it sounds like I mean whether whether they did it right or or not is or if they executed it correctly is is up for debate. But I, I, I got the sense that like they weren't concerned so much with like mechanics and world building and they were more concerned with like the emotional through line between America Ferrera's character Gloria and 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 Barbie and and yeah like I, I I didn't think so much about the 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 way the rules worked because I I was interested in enough in like the characters and their emotional journey and what each person was represent like what barbie was representing in america ferrera's character and i, I keep saying america but gloria and vice versa so I, I i feel like they weren't they almost were being flippant with the rules by design you know like it's like yeah and then you go on on the car and then you go on the jet ski and then you go on the camper van and it's like this whole journey that makes no sense and isn't yeah it's almost like not supposed to make sense it's just like go with it and but like we're gonna get you to what we really want to talk about, and again, if that, yeah. if that was distracting, then in a way it it didn't work then, right? But then I I, I feel like that's what they were going for. Yeah, Joe, I, I I'm to too I'm too uh, literal yeah. as a person. I should have read it more figuratively. <laughs> yeah. But like I I always saw like those wacky transitional phases where this kind of like okay, you know. They've accepted this makes no sense, right? So they're just gonna go with it. They, they clearly just like to what Job said, they're just moving along with with the the, the emotional journeys of, of the character, right? So I wonder if it could have worked better if Barbie Land was like stop motion and then there were the actual dolls, but you can you you can make them look like the actual like actors who play them. But then when they cross over to the real world, they become the actual actors. Like, you know, the Margot Robbie doll becomes Margot Robbie when she goes into the real world. So that, I don't know, I, this is a thought that I that I just had as you guys were talking. Hey, if that was the case, though, then we wouldn't have gotten that glorious dance scene. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, you're right. Yes. <laughs> yeah, that was... Which one? Yeah. You mean, you mean Which Simu, one? Simu Liu uh, versus uh, Ryan Gosling. Oh, sure. There's two. I, I was thinking of the first one. 
when they play the Dua Lipa song, uh, which oh yeah, at, at Barbie's house. I right. mean that that's like one of the best scenes in the movie. Is that the one where Ryan Gosling was like watching a Simulu? <laughs> yeah, like all salty and stuff. Yeah, yeah and, then he, and he goes in. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, I just, just calling him Simulu. Simu oh. Ken. Oh yeah, what what's yeah. his? Uh, I think he's known as. Uh, yeah, on Wikipedia, he's known as Tourist Ken. Tourist Ken. Yeah. Wow. That's yep. racist. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I just wanted to add that uh, I I too did not think about the world building mechanics at all. <laughs> but <laughs> I just great. I just I just think that it, it's it's really funny. It, it's it's like a very male centric way of looking at the like picking apart the film. <laughs> but I would love to, like, I hope there there's a group of girls out there who are having the same complaints as you, because that would just be freaking awesome. Like hearing them talk about like, how come, <laughs> like how come traveling to the real world is so weird? Like, I think it, it's just a funny way of looking at it. And I, I can see why it would like bother you. But for me, like the moment they like say, oh yeah, like like the moment Kate McKinnon pulls out the world map or whatever. And is like, this is how you get there. Like I was immediately like, I don't care how you explain it to me. Like, you could you could have made it even more stupid and convoluted and i would have been fine like i would have just been like okay that's yeah like just take us there right because <laughs> for me like i i don't like there are just movies where it's very easy for me to like just turn that part of my brain off um but uh i will say like i totally agree with what you're saying about uh gloria america Ferrer's character about how like uh i i think the mechanics of the world and, and just kind of like implementing her story into it all probably would have needed, like could have used better execution because yeah, ultimately like when she gives that speech, which we'll, I'm sure we'll talk about later, but like, I just feel like it doesn't work as well uh, because we barely know anything about her. And also just like the context and when she, which it's told, it's kind of like, yeah, like could have used a little bit more background. Right. But, but ultimately like, <laughs> yeah, when they just talk about the mechanics and stuff, uh i was just like whatever it's like it, it actually kind of reminded me of like uh studio ghibli movies uh where you know it's like like Howl's moving castle or like uh kiki's delivery service where like there's 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 movies or there's parts in those movies where like adults uh like ponyo too like adults are exposed to like magic and they're just like okay with it they're just like oh yeah yeah you know like in, in a lot of yeah. other movies like the parents would be the character where they like discredit the kid like oh you believe in such stupid stuff you know but in, in like Miyazaki's movies they just go with it they're just like oh yeah there, there's magic in this world and stuff like that yeah there's there's just a girl you know flying on the roofs like that's that's normal yeah yeah <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. yeah yeah I get what you're saying yeah, yeah. And, and it's kind of just that's like that's a, a big part of like why I love those movies and then for I guess I'm kind of reading it in like the similar vein where in Barbie it's like when the boardroom goes to barbie land and, and like there's they don't even really explain but somehow they, they're like aware of this place maybe they've even been there before i'm not sure but they just go there and it's like not a huge deal even like gloria when she goes she's just like oh cool <laughs> you know like and her daughter like her daughter was like no way is this chick the real barbie like when she's talking about margot robbie and then she goes into barbie land and she's just like huh Okay, you know, it's just like, <laughs> yes. I guess she is real. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's like I, yeah, I feel like they they didn't emphasize it for a reason. Uh, but 
Yeah. yeah. So I, I, I got to confess, I, I don't watch a lot of Miyazaki films. I have seen, you know, the notable. Same on your mic. Yeah, I know, <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. But uh, so it has been a number of years since I've watched uh, his films, and so maybe that's why I'm not as prepared for for Barbie. <laughs> Shame. So let it be known that Miyazaki is prerequisite for Barbie. <laughs> yes, definitely. Uh, I got to bring up since uh, Paul brought up the boardroom. This this was actually the funniest I found. Or the most amused I was by Will Ferrell in, in in quite some time. I I I've completely forgotten how how good he is at taking a regular sentence and sort of emphasizing one word to to make it you know funny for no reason. That's all I gotta say. Yeah, wasn't he also in the Lego Movie too? Yes. Okay. Yeah. So I know there are maybe theories that they're one and the same person. <laughs> oh, that's that is interesting. Was he yeah. was he the corporate head in in that one too? I don't think so. Right? In the Lego world, he he is like the corporate. He's like the main villain. Oh yeah, but <laughs> in the real but in the real world, he he he's dead. turns out that he's the dad. Oh, so, so so everything that's happening in the Lego movie is like a manifestation of right the the conflict between the boy and the dad. Wow, and the Lego movie. Is also Warner Brothers, right? Yeah, yeah, it is. Okay, yeah, they just love casting Will Ferrell as the villain of all toy movies, I guess. He's getting typecast. Guys. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, strangest typecast well, ever. Even all the way back to Zoolander, he was Mugatu. He's the corporate head, you know, like ah, that's true. Uh, so, um, I I don't like uh, Zoolander. Zoolander is also, I think, Warner Brothers also. <laughs> Oh my Is gosh. It? Yeah. So someone needs to look that up. Um yeah, let's see. But I, I gotta say, it, uh, you know, in the background in the boardroom scene, you see the logo for Warner Brothers Discovery. And I'm like, oh gosh, like they they're like space jamming this movie, you know, like with cramming their IPs, like they they mentioned Zack Snyder's Justice League. Yeah, I, I laughed out loud at that part. Yeah, <laughs> it's it's funny, it's funny, but I'm like, it was kind of funny, awesome. yeah. Because I, you know, we we all have seen uh Space Jam, a new legacy, right? The LeBron James Space Jam, like <laughs> we've just, all seen it. I I have that not cinematic seen it, masterpiece. Consider yourself lucky, Paul. Yeah, dude, we, we, we we talked about it, dude. Paul, what kind of bronze sexual are you, man? Like, <laughs> <laughs> Clearly, I'm not one. I watched whoa, whoa, it. At, I watched it at midnight when it dropped. <laughs> oh my god! I think hey, the only part I've the seen is the part that you showed me. Yeah. Oh Mike. yeah, yeah, but it's just like shameless IP plugging uh in yeah, that yeah. movie. It's yeah, such yeah. a Warner so, thing. So I, I was like, please don't do that to this movie. And then thankfully it was just like, you know, they just kind of sprinkled it in, you know, but so it wasn't that that bad. But yeah, but you Space know, Jam, they went overboard. A funny thing about the Zack Snyder moment was I laughed out loud and I was the only one in the room in the theater. <laughs> I feel like I may have been. I mean, I agree with you. I think uh, Alice and I were talking about how there were like, some jokes where he laughed and, yeah. and like no one else did. Yeah, that just, may have been one just, of them. Yeah. Just think of like the optics of that. It's like the one dude in the theater laughing. I felt so embarrassed, man. But I, and I had to explain to my wife and her sister who I watched it with after why that part was so funny. And I was just, they're just like, oh. Okay, <laughs> but see the difference is we laughed at this this reference. We couldn't. I mean, Space Jam that was hard to laugh at. Oh, so oh. yeah, yeah, Space Jam. 
Just yeah, wanted like, to provide an update that Zoolander is Paramount Pictures, not Warner Brothers. Oh, gotcha. Okay. Also <laughs> part of the AMPTP, please pay your writers and your actors. Thank you. <laughs> here, here. Oh my gosh. Here, here, yes. All right. I want to bring up Gloria's long monologue. Um, yeah. I, I want to know what you guys thought about it because everything she says in it, you know, I was listening to it and I'm like, I you know, I just wish we would have seen more of her everyday life to know the experiences that have led her to where she is, you know, mm-hmm. to cause the inciting incident, you know, where she's kind of getting darker in her artwork. Yeah. Um, you know, but the monologue, the way it's written and the way the whole scene's kind of set up, like I think she more or less breaks the fourth wall and is just preaching to the audience. And I just think it would have been more effective if we just saw her life and saw her kind of go through those experiences, you know, um, there's it made me think about this movie that does such a good job with that. Uh, it's called Never, Rarely, Sometimes, Always. I've mentioned it before on this podcast, but it was like one of my favorite movies from 2020. It's by writer director Eliza Hitman. I'm just plugging this movie because I just I love it to death. Uh, if you really want to be shown instead of told how hard it is to be a woman, uh, I mean, watch that movie. Uh, it was very eye opening and very powerful. Um, but. Um, Going back to this movie, I think I I think we needed just more from Gloria. You know, uh, and we already mentioned how she was sidelined at the end, but I think in the beginning we also needed more from this character, and I don't think the movie provided enough. Yeah, that's this is I I agree with you, Mike. This is where I kind of felt like we they were leaning too much into the message and not kind of telling the story with the message. Um, it it felt like um yeah like like you said it they were kind of like breaking the fourth wall and i think it was a really good speech like in fact i you know i i felt like a lot of emotions listening to that because i mean i know how how a lot of that would relate to to women and um but it did kind of come out of nowhere it's like we're we're meant to just assume and understand that like this is a hard working working class type woman and this is her struggle, et cetera, et cetera. But really the only seeds of that we've seen were that like her daughter kind of didn't like talking to her and that was kind of all we got. And so I felt like it was just a little too convenient in the way it kind of assumed it made it, it like made assumptions that we as an audience will buy that her life is hard already without really like earning that right right almost it doesn't it doesn't do the work in the story to kind of set that up right because we've been focused on margot robbie's world for half the first half of the film and and that's where it starts to get a little messy it's like there's there's two conflicting storylines we're trying to tell here and who's actually the main character who's actually getting the emotional like story resolution almost you know i i also wanted to point out it's probably another small detail but like i think gloria is the only female employee at mattel right so they might have also used that as like a kind of mm, like a yeah. added point of emphasis to her speech that she was kind of like isolated from the rest of the the men so to speak um but yeah i mean just regarding the speech uh so if i could just insert you know we, we I talked to one of our friends of the podcast who I don't know if I she wants me to say her name, so I mean I'll just 
keep it anonymous, right? But I asked her about what she thought about the movie. Uh, and one of the parts that she brought up specifically was this scene. Uh, so just to, I mean, I know this doesn't, this doesn't replace like uh, having like a female presence on this podcast, but just to offer a little like insight from someone outside of our group. Uh, so regarding the speech, like she kind of had issues with it because um, it's, it's kind of like preaching to the choir. So it's like, you know, she says a lot of like important talking points that I think, you know, a lot of females will, will amen to, but it's also speaks to like a certain audience of people who hear that speech and will like applaud it. Right. But it's not, it, it's not like all women. So I, I think her, her issue with this was like, and, and this kind of speaks to the larger part of the story. Right. So essentially to, to briefly summarize, right. Like when Ken kind of like finds out about the patriarchy and gets brainwashed by it in the real world, which by the way, is also like a hilarious scene uh, when he goes to the, like, I, I think it's like the Mattel office or whatever. And he sees yeah, all the so like good. slideshows. It's like freaking funny. Um, I think he and, went to the library at the school too. Right? Oh yeah, that was yeah. The beginning of his career. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so those, it, you know, that stuff was like hilarious, but obviously like highlights an underlying problem with like society today, right? Uh, and so what happens with Barbie Land is that you know all of the women become submissive towards the men, and they their lives are no longer about like living their their truth, living their best lives now, but rather to be subservient to the Kens, right? Um, and so I think our friend had complaints with the speech because it's like, you know, there are women in this world who feel like it's not that they want to be subservient or submissive, but it's like they they don't mind like uh, being the person that like helps helps the man, right? Like has the man like lead the house or or things like that. So it's like a point of view where it's like it. it the speech doesn't capture like everyone right the, so when when america Ferrer's character is like giving that speech it's like she's kind of saying it to people who already believe in that dogma right and it's just like it's like oh good on you right and it's it's not like kind of covering all bases i guess i i must be butchering this the way that she explained it to me but i think that's an important criticism right like you know, not all women feel the way that she does. And maybe that was something that I, I've read that like some feminists might have problems with, maybe for different reasons. But um, and to speak to the larger issue about the movie, like those Barbies that initially are like subservient to the Kens, right? Immediately the the plot in the in the in the film gears towards like how do we like get these people out of being brainwashed right so like how do we completely eliminate this point of view that some women might actually have in real life so i don't know does that make sense <laughs> i'm sorry yeah that's, yeah, that's like actually that's actually really interesting i'd like to like to hear more about that yeah we need that follow-up uh podcast but th thanks for bringing that perspective paul um yeah um i think the speech like to me it it, it, for me it was a mixed bag i mean I'll, I'll be honest i really liked it overall because i i don't know if i saw it as a speech and once again i'm only saying this from my perspective right uh that was trying to sort of cover all the bases of of what it means to be a woman but you know 
the way I think of Barbie is it's a movie about expectations, right? Whether whether it, they're positive or negative, they can be crushing either way. So I, I think if, when when I think of the speech that way, it, it, it completely works for me. Um, is it delivered by a character that we feel like should be flushed out a little more? So you feel like the, the messenger, you know, you, you believe the message when you believe in the messenger more, right? Yep. Yeah, I, I think that that's that's totally valid. And I do agree with that. Like, we don't really get to know Gloria as uh, a uh, as a, you know, uh, character as well as I think we should have. Because once again, like I said, the best and worst part about this movie is it's trying to cover a lot of bases because it, it understands the weight, the history of this doll has. It's unlike any history any other toy line has had to carry. It's seen more changes. It's had to set and bear the expectations that come with those changes through those uh, through the generations. So, yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I, I see those points, but I, I think I primarily see this speech as just really about expectations. I see the entire movie as a movie about expectations. Yeah, I, I, I almost wonder if Greta Gerwig kind of made it a point so that. They, she didn't develop Gloria's character. And when she gave that speech, it's like, we don't need to develop Gloria's character for her to be able to say that because it's like all women feel this way. Like a, a way to like, we don't need to sh explain what the pain, like the pain that we've gone through because like it's such a universal female pain that like the moment she says it, you know, all the women say amen, right? Or whatever. So I wonder if maybe that was intentional or if not, like, I don't know. I, I you know, and even just like, looking at her previous films, right? Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna give a quote from Little Women because I this is one of my favorite quotes in the movie. And I think it also speaks about the you know the female experience and just feminism in general. So it's it's when Joe March is talking to her mom. So it's Saoirse Ronan, right? She's talking about love and like her singleness, I guess. So she says, and I'm sure you guys all know this line. She says, women, they have minds and they have souls as well as just hearts. And they've got ambition and they've got talent as well as just beauty. I'm so sick of people saying that love is all a woman is fit for. I'm so sick of it. And then she pauses and then she says, but I'm so lonely. And I feel like that level of nuance in, in speaking about like the female experience is like really, I don't know. It's just very like uh, awe inspiring for me because it's like, yeah, like that makes sense. Like, even though I don't, know what they go through like that's a very relatable statement right and I feel like when you want to have like a powerful speech like like Gloria's speech in, in in the Barbie movie like you you don't want to like completely alienate the side that is I guess antagonizing you right so I guess quote-unquote towards the patriarchy excuse me and so yeah I, I feel like there could have been a little bit more nuance uh in the in the speech and I feel like uh yeah, what Albert says about expectation is is a good point. So maybe, you know, that was really more so the point of emphasis. But yeah, I, I also think it's uh it's it it's a good point to highlight that this movie was co-written by you know Greta Gerwig and also her partner, Noah Baumbach. So maybe maybe this was like Noah Baumbach's side of the you know, the screenplay or whatever. And I, I, I just like to assume that every part that I had issues with in this movie was because of Noah Baumbach because uh, Greta Gerwig is like perfect to me. So, <laughs> and I like, 
I like kind of love and hate Noah Baumbach's movies. So I'm just going to yeah, assume same everything, here. Yeah. yeah, everything that's bad with uh, the movie, I'm just going to assume it's his fault. <laughs> I, I, I still hate the squid in the well. And I, I don't know if it's because I'm supposed to, but I just <laughs> yeah. hate it. And, uh, yeah, so, but no, I, I wanted to bring a good, uh, another, uh, that, no, those were good points. And, but I also wanted to sort of bring in, I think the speech isn't just about expectations. It's also about paradoxes too, right? Which right, right. I think this movie tries to do a lot of yes, there's there are Barbies telling women about when they can be right astronauts, doctors, the president. But at the same time, you know, the movie also sort of explores the underlying dark side of of doing such a thing. Which you know, I I think you were the one who said it makes the movie sort of very bold in its own way. That's you know, <laughs> being made by Mattel and Warner Brothers, and obviously. The, regardless of what we think about this movie it's made to sell toys it's not kid all these movies are and and uh but the fact that it would sort of challenge this this the paradoxical nature of the toy it's trying to sell and you know on the back probably successfully selling more because of it is 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 uh is really really interesting uh but also like i think one of the movie's stronger themes Yeah, right on, man. Um, I would love to, yeah, I, I would love to uh, talk more about this, but I think, I think we're, at, I feel like we're at a point in our discussion where uh, it would be really interesting to get uh, that different perspective that we've been uh, talking about. Um, is there any, so, so maybe we can kind of table uh, these thoughts and then uh, we can come back to it in our follow up episode on Barbie. Yeah. Yeah. Stay tuned. There, part two. I, yes. I will have to say I've never seen a movie make Culver City or Century City like the epicenter of all. All, all that is wrong. That is in the so world. true. That is yeah. so true. And do you know why? It's because the Annenberg space for photography isn't there anymore. I blame them for leaving. So <laughs> how dare they? How dare they? Um, I I did find it interesting that they in the Barbie world the Kens were kind of the inverse of what women are supposed to look like in the real world according to this movie i feel like that was a big piece of the thematic element of this film that i thought was kind of intriguing like it, it was actually a really uh interesting way to tell the story and it was it was also um ripe for a lot of comedic moments and so i just wanted to shout that out um before we move on is like I just thought all the Ken stuff was delightful, especially Ryan Gosling, of course. And yeah, Simu was um, a pretty good foil for him, honestly. He was, yeah. Even though yeah. he basically was playing Simu Liu, I feel like <laughs> there was no real difference to, yeah. to his character. But I thought it was fun. It was just kind of just hilarious. I, I can never feel fully represented by Simu Liu just because yes. although we share the same last name, he's so buff and I'm so scrawny. So. <laughs> I, 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 that was not where I thought you were going with that. Yeah. I went there. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I also wanted to point out that I, I was I did not know a lot about the history of Barbie. Um, I, I do have memories of like the felled aspects of the toy line. Um, and um but I also didn't know a lot about, you know, its creator, who's who also shows up uh, in 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 
the movie as a bit of an apparition, I guess. Uh, but I, this movie was interesting enough that I actually started looking all that stuff up and looking at YouTube videos about the history of, of the toy as well as the people associated with it. Nice. Uh, yeah, I didn't I didn't go that far, um, although with our next movie, I, I started watching a lot of videos about atomic bombs and and, and, and about uh, Los yeah, yeah. <laughs> the patriarchy. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and just to just to point out, like what Joe was saying about how, like, you know, the Ken's in Barbie land are sort of meant to mirror like what women are like the the man's image of women in the real world it that's one of those things where it's like it's funny in the movie but it's also meant to be like a a talking point right that we're meant to like reflect on be like yeah that's like messed up in in the real world but it's like that's an example of the movie fighting with itself i feel like because it's like you don't take it seriously in the movie because it's like it's just funny it's just like like what joe said like it makes for really really funny moments where ryan gosling's like so you know like I can can I come over tonight? And Barbie's like, okay. And it's like, uh, what do you want to do? And he's like, you know, I I don't really know. <laughs> you know. It's just like it's just like moments like that where it's like, yeah, like at face value, like it's just funny. It's it's just a, a vehicle to have a lot more jokes, a lot more comedic moments. But then, if you like really think about it, then it's like, oh yeah, that is kind of kind of sad. <laughs> Yeah, I kind of wanted to actually ask all of you, because I know we were joking about this beforehand, but I did feel called out at certain points. And I, I thought it was kind of hilarious. Like, I think one of the points, one of the um, jokes was, was you know, you know, mansplaining, right? And then they have this one part where, where a guy is, 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 is saying, oh, you haven't seen the godfather yet like <laughs> yeah. i was like oh man i i totally got caught out there i'm pretty sure i've done the same to a lot of people um <laughs> maybe yeah. particularly the woman close closest to me and i was like you know i i deserve that i i did i deserve to get called out for that totally the uh, campfire scene also was like hilarious <laughs> oh, yeah. it was so good yeah yeah what was it like four hours later or something yeah uh yeah yeah i mean i i i feel sincerely sad for any man who is like actually offended during that scene where it's like this is how you this is how you like manipulate men you know catering to their insecurities and stuff i mean i think a lot of it's true and a lot of it's just it's just really funny (laughs) yeah it it's it's a parody right like this the the tone is it's it's kind of like a self-referential thing i I don't know that there's anything worth really being offended over. I mean, I I definitely, as a teenager, played guitar in youth group to try to get girls to be interested in me for sure. You know, (laughs) it's a universal truth. That's like what we do. It's a it's a weapon. Yes, yes. The weapon is the melody. (laughs) No, true. Yeah. All right. I think it's a. about time in our discussion right now. We're going to switch gears now. Uh, Speaking we're gonna, of tortured I, men. <laughs> yes. One very ta- tortured man. Yeah. We're going to be switching gears and we're going to be discussing Christopher Nolan's Oppenheimer. a future 
and our imaginings horrify us. They won't fear it until they understand it. Job, what are your general thoughts on Oppenheimer? Did you like it? How did you feel like it stacked up to Christopher Nolan's other films? I hated it. I'm just kidding. <laughs> yes, <laughs> let's go. I'm trying to be, uh, you know, I'm filling my role as the, uh, you know, the. Uh, what? Never mind. <laughs> I don't know where I was going with that. <laughs> Um, okay, I, I remember when we heard for the first time that Christopher Nolan was making a period drama based around World War II, and it was called Dunkirk. And <laughs> um, it was a big deal at the time uh, because we weren't sure if Nolan and historical drama would be a good mix. You know, at the time we had B the Batman movies, we had Inception, you know, kind of cool, like high concept stuff or comic books. Um, but our fears obviously were 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 not justified for that one. So coming into Oppenheimer, I I wasn't concerned so much as curious how he tackled a character that history has kind of deemed as complicated at best, uh, brilliant of course, but complicated, um, and an actual villain at worst. And I feel like Nolan has always had lead characters who are pretty like morally straightforward. We kind of know that they're good people um, dealing with internal conflicts, but you're never uncertain of whether they were good or not. And so to portray J. Robert Oppenheimer uh, is kind of interesting to me. Um, and I was intrigued going in what that would look like. And I think it was great. I mean, the dialogue is very Sorkin-esque. I've seen that described a lot. Um, I thought the pacing of this film was very interesting as well. I thought it like was going really fast, but I realized that it was on purpose because this was a three hour film and it needed to kind of keep moving, if that makes sense. And I thought it was great. And I thought it was masterfully crafted. Um, I There were some issues I I had. There were some characters or cameos that took me out of the film. Uh, I thought there were a few too many. Um, and there were some of the relationships uh, in this film didn't really like have any real teeth to them, if that makes sense, at least on the first watch. But at the end of it all, I thought this was, of course, another masterpiece from one of the great auteurs of our time. I'm also sad that I didn't get to watch it in 70 millimeter, at least not yet. And my yeah, chances. Why don't, you, why don't you tell us about that experience, man? Yeah, I mean, we we talked about it in the last. I I don't know if we're including that in this episode, but uh, just go ahead and talk about yeah. it right now. Yeah, so like, I mean, we were gonna go see that uh, Paul and I and a few others on opening night, and I was running late. I I misjudged traffic, and so I was like, I'm gonna be late. I'm gonna miss the first twenty movie minutes of this movie, and I parked and like ran like Tom Cruise across Irvine spectrum to like get there on time <laughs> <laughs> like quickly snatching the, the film reel that we got, you know, like I was like, okay, I got, and then ran up only to find out that the projector had broken and they may have canceled it. And I was like, we were like, how is this happening? Deja and then the guy, the guy comes in and says, I'm so sorry. We're going to run like the, the standard digital release uh instead and 
I was so I'd never been more proud as a moviegoer, but the whole room erupted with no. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, I'm just not you know, I'm just not sure what they were thinking when they said something like that, I, honestly. I feel bad for the manager. I think he was panicking a little. It's opening night and there's a lot riding on this screening and there's another one at 10 p.m. or 10:30 p.m. or whatever. And I think he just wanted to like give people something, but he figured maybe something's better than nothing. But anyway, this is such a long odyssey of a story. I'm sorry. But yeah, maybe I'll get to see it in 70 millimeter someday. So sorry for hogging the time. Yes. Well, hey, if it makes you feel any better, I've seen the movie twice and both of them were in standard. (laughs) So I have yet to see it in 70 millimeter IMAX. So so hear me out before we move. I think there should be like, you know, Paul Bob Ghibli. You know, there every year there's a Ghibli fest that G Kids puts on to theaters, and it, it's on the off season. They play all the you know Ghibli movies, you know, one for what each week and that sort of stuff. And they should do the same thing with Nolan, but that's yes. in the month that no one, so people actually have something when they, and it, they have like a seventy millimeter reel that they could train on, so they don't wait every you know three or four years. Yeah, so so their equipment like doesn't that. break like Correct. on opening yeah. nights. They <laughs> right. keep it maintained. Right. Yep. Yeah. That's uh yeah, that's a that's a really good idea. I would totally spend money to go watch his rewatch his films in 70 millimeter IMAX. Warner uh, Brothers Universal put out listen to us, put these <laughs> things out and also pay your writers and your actors. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> They should put it in January when uh, studios dump all the bad horror movies uh, into that month. <laughs> Dude, it's a windfall. People will go see that stuff, man. Like, yeah. seriously. Yeah, I think so, too. You're a genius, Albert. <laughs> and according to a Reddit post uh, that uh, one of my friends said uh, or showed to me earlier today, apparently the Irvine Spectrum Theater completely ruined their 70 millimeter film reel. So it's like unwatchable. What? So it, I think it's broken again. So they that's ruined what, the actual film print. Yeah, I think they like screwed hard. up the film print. Yeah, that's hard to do because that 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 film print is, <laughs> it's pretty thick. It's pretty yeah durable. Yeah, all things considered. Oh boy. Well, uh, I, I think one there's a one of our friends from our uh, group chat said that uh, he had gone to see it in IMAX at the best Irvine Spectrum, and then they were playing the digital IMAX version. So and then I had also seen Oppenheimer a couple of days ago, and then after my show showing was finished, I'm like, I'm gonna sneak into the IMAX theater just to see what it looks like because you know I still hadn't seen it yet. And then I could tell right away it was exactly the same for, in the same format that I just saw it in in standard. It was a digital <laughs> production. It did not look like film at all. I was like, dude, what the heck is going? Are, are they are they charging these people for? 70 millimeter, but then they're just projecting digital. Anyways, it's a, it's a madhouse. Um, I think this is a good point in time that we can insert something that we actually recorded last week. Uh, we were talking about the frustrations about watching this film. And uh, this is a pre- leading up to our discussion about Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1. It had nothing to do with what we were discussing. <laughs> we were just talking about how frustrating it is to watch this movie. And I think Paul and I kind of um, had a disagreement on What's a better first viewing experience? Like, would you rather watch the standard format, get the movie in your brain, 
or would you rather watch it in the way that Christopher Nolan intended it, which is 70 millimeter IMAX? So we're, we're going to play that for you right now, and then we'll come back to our discussion. <laughs> hey, so, uh, Paul, you haven't seen Oppenheimer yet, right? Nope. I'm and not. Albert, I'm really worried about when I can't see it because we're we're coming up really close to 48. And and so we're sort of just doing our prep work. And I I can't. Damn it. I can't find like a good even like a basic AMC IMAX screen unless I'm willing to watch it at 1030. I have like I have to be awake at the you know, and at work at 730 every day this week. I, I just I don't know, man. I, I have to drink a lot of coffee in the morning to make it work. I, I think it's almost more likely that I see Barbie just because there's more flexibility in those show times than me having to watch Oppenheimer, right? Because I'm not going to watch Oppenheimer on any screens. So and like, just just watch it in standard and then watch it again. Like find the IMAX screening for... I, I know, but I still want to watch <laughs> even the typical AMC fake Max. I'll settle for I don't want to watch it. <laughs> like I don't want to watch it knowing that a huge part of it's been cut off or something. But I didn't plan ahead, man. I didn't plan ahead well enough. I really didn't. It's on me. So just the... Just Put the movie in your brain and then go watch uh, it again in IMAX. Oh man, <laughs> dude, I don't know. I I, I would have wanted to watch it on like the way he intended to shoot it the first time. So I mean, that's why I'm still waiting. So oh. I know yeah. uh, we all we're uh, we're I, almost I, there. I, I didn't have access to that uh, 70 millimeter IMAX, so I, well, I just watched it. it probably well. See, for for me, like my thinking is like I got the movie in my brain. And now I have ha- I've had a lot of time to think about it because it's a really dense movie. There's a lot of stuff in it. Yeah. Uh, I mean, oh, Joe, you saw it, right? I did. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. In in Limax. So. Oh, Limax. Yeah. So I like like my because this is a movie you can't just watch once. Uh, there's so much going on in it. There's a lot of talking, and you need subtitles. Uh, not because it's inaudible, but because there's just so <laughs> much going on at at once. And uh, so I was like thinking like, well, because I'm going to see it again, I'm, I'm just going to see it in IMAX, you know, and be blown away by just the visuals and everything the second time. You have a 70 millimeter showing booked? No, I don't. Oh, oh. I'm going to see it not next week, but the week after, I think. Something hey, like uh, if it's not at 11 p.m., let me know when you're going to go. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was going to go back uh, with Paul on Wednesday, but I realized like, man, I'm going to be home at like three in the morning. if I yeah. so. That's rough. But I, I mean, I, I have the same mentality as you, Mike, but it's like, yeah, I want the movie in my brain, but I want the first time to be like the good, like the craziest one. Yeah. And then afterwards, it's like, oh, yeah, I can just rewatch it again to take everything else in. But like for me, it's like I want to watch it like the first time where it's like, this is this is how we made it, you know. <laughs> yeah, but you know, it's kind of like it's kind of like the Dark Knight Rises, where we saw it in standard first, and then, and then we we subsequently watched an IMAX. And I feel like like we were so moved by the movie, and then seeing an IMAX is like it's like whoa, there's like there's a whole other movie that you you kind of missed, you know. Yeah, so but like, that's yeah. because we watched it at the freaking Warner Brothers lot and we got to touch the Batmobile before we got to see the movie. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean that's know, a pretty well, if I could do that every for every Warner Brothers movie and watch it in standard then yeah, I would do that. Well, okay, okay but the thing is 
I, like we've seen the movie and you haven't so it's like <laughs> you, you know like well like, yeah i mean it sucks but there's nothing i can work. do about it it didn't work it didn't yeah. work. So like you, you, you can just watch it standard and watch it later in imax hey dude nolan would be so disappointed in you man to hear you say that how could you defame the name of nolan <laughs> like this I just heresy. I just don't have faith in the people running the projectors like hearing you guys go through that I'm like dude I just uh <laughs> I think the next time this like something like that happened like when they release like an IMAX movie in like film like I don't trust that opening night like or oh, even yeah. opening yeah. or even opening week where, where uh Job mentioned like we went to go watch Dunkirk like three weeks after it came out and they were mm. still projecting digital because they still like, kind of mess up the, the film the film it's just, uh... I think I think this the moral is is not to go to uh, Irvine Spectrum. I mean, it's for, hard. Or, it's or hard. Screenings. How do you find people to do something right that they're not doing all the yeah, time? Yeah. So, you know? well, here's here's yeah, some right. here's exactly. some insight from that night is we we heard that they had two IMAX professional projectionists there um, that they were paying like nine hundred bucks for each night to make sure that it was working and it still didn't. You know, it might have said um, nine hundred an hour. No, dude. No, <laughs> they they, they better have gotten their their uh their money back because yeah, they blew that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I saw keep Dunkirk in, in seventy millimeter IMAX like opening night and it worked, but yeah, it's it's really like a crapshoot. I mean, yeah. I, I I don't really have much faith in them either. And even before the movie started, I like kind of leaned over to Job and I was like, I wouldn't be surprised like if Jeez, this doesn't shit. work. Yeah. it's tough there's uh, so many more points of failure when you project a film you know yeah, yeah but i know i was so the, stressed then you out do too, IMAX like, even running worse because it's a much yeah. yeah i don't really know how they deliver it because usually it, back then it was just like you would get four four reels four to five reels for a two-hour film splice it together they'd have like a list of trailers you splice those trailers together uh, I don't even know how that works with an IMAX. I would assume something like that happens, but how would you remove any of those reels? You know, so you, you know, I, I looked it up, and uh, nowhere in Asia are they projecting seventy millimeter IMAX. Like, not even that China makes sense. Like makes China sense. with all its theaters, like so. Yeah, I, I just treated it like, uh, you know, uh, I'm just gonna pretend, you know, like I have no access to this, and I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna watch it like a, you know. Yeah, see, that's that's what makes it special, though. Like, there's only 19 theaters in the world that can do it, and I have one that's 10 minutes away from me. So it's like, why not take advantage of it, right? Yes. Uh, yeah, but okay, I, I guess for me, like, I like having seen the movie like as early as possible. I, I that that to me is like more important. I guess uh, we just have different yeah, priorities. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. That to me is, the... is not as yeah, important. Yeah. So, oh yeah, that's why I'm always there Thursday night. Like, I can't, I can't not watch it Thursday night. <laughs> Well, hey, we were there Thursday night too, so it was. I know I ran also I ran faster than Tom Cruise to yeah. get there in time, <laughs> yeah. dude. I and hope this is, still didn't work. I hope this doesn't break up the band for uh for the next you know <laughs> IMAX release where we're like I want to watch it opening night, but I don't want to I don't want to freaking risk. It's, I don't want to have any risk. I just want to watch in regular digital projection. I uh, <laughs> like, dude. Okay, dude. If you watch an RPX or something at, at the Spectrum, like that's a really long screen. It, like it's not IMAX, but it's still like really long. So uh, I, oh, I yeah? think you're still you're still getting a really big theatrical experience. I mean, yeah, this definitely changes like how I'm gonna view it 
for Nolan's next movie because yeah, like it, it just punishes the most faithful fans of his that yeah. people just freaking suck at operating the thing. Yeah, yeah I know, mean, everyone was so disappointed. Like they were all like, "Oh, do you guys." You know, I we want to just put something on the screen anyways to make your time worth it, and everyone's yeah, like, "Yeah, what's the oh, point?" Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Are you kidding me? Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's crazy. That's that's awesome to see so many people who are so dedicated to, like they yeah. love cinema. You know, those are yeah, like, like when they offered to when they offered to just play the digital one, like uh, like ten percent of the people walked out, and everyone else stayed. They're like, "We're gonna wait till you." Fix the I have a question. Did you know yeah. whether there were IMAX, uh, if anything playing in that theater the day before? Because uh, if there sure. was, they wouldn't have had enough time to test run that reel. More than maybe probably the, Mission yeah. Impossible. The manager said they test ran it th- four times and yeah. it worked mm. each time. So, so cool. It, I probably would have been better off if you didn't tell me that. Yeah, it's like <laughs> you wasted the four times yeah. we could I mean, have watched it. Could happen, yeah. like I said. Yeah, yeah. And then anytime anything happens, just you can't really just you know get a mouse and then click it back to the beginning. We should uh we should put this at the front of our Oppenheimer uh, podcast. Right? Oh yeah, or leave I mean, it leave it at the end of this. Oh, one. <laughs> that's a really good idea. Yeah, and, and I mean <laughs> the fact that it's eight miles long, the freaking film. <laughs> <laughs> Like it's not just a regular film, you know. It's like eight miles long. You, have you guys seen the? You've seen the pictures of them, right? Like it's just kind of bulging out. Like oh uh, my, God. yeah, it looks like it's about to fall apart because of the weight. I'm gonna, I'm, yeah. I'm gonna so throw someone... Alice underneath the bus here, but I'll tell you why. One of the reasons why I couldn't pick up an early screening in Irvine was that she wasn't. <laughs> I could have just gone by myself, but she wasn't that interested in in, in going all the way to Irvine to watch it. She didn't understand why. Uh, because she, she kept hearing seventy millimeter, she didn't understand that I was talking about like the film. I Some right, projection. and and yeah. until she saw like that image of the 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 whole real thing there, she's like, oh. But it was too late. It's already last Wednesday. It was not going to be any sort of open. <laughs> we didn't plan to schedule or time around that. So now, oh, wow. I mean, did you hear? It's like seventy millimeter, uh, fifteen perf. Which is uh? Do you, do you guys uh, look into that? Like um, so like a normal thirty-five millimeter film is like four perfs or five perfs, right? Per- the perfs are like the little mm-hmm. holes on the side of the yeah. film. Yeah. So there's like five holes on the side. That's like how how they kind of measure the size mm-hmm. of the film, right? This this movie is fifteen perf. So <laughs> there, there's fifteen of those holes for each like frame. Yeah, like that. It's not even just the frame. If you look at like the sides. The sound. Hey, let me let me just check how many yeah. holes are in this. Uh... <laughs> Let's go. Yeah. Hey, I, I should pull mine out too. <laughs> yeah. All right. See, see, that's something that you guys have that I don't. I just have an Oppenheimer po- poster. <laughs> it's so funny. I, I didn't think you actually save that part and play it. <laughs> I did. Oh, <laughs> I'm like, this is too too good of a discussion. We gotta we gotta play it. <laughs> how how long is that discussion? Have you like, like have you looked 30 at minutes? I don't, yeah, I don't know. Right? I don't know, but I'll cut it out. <laughs> <laughs> Shit. All right. The man they're missing. Yeah, okay. We we know that our audience, they don't care how long the episode is, they'll just listen to it if it's like if it's a topic or if it's a movie that they're interested in. So that's that that's what I've seen according to our stats. 
our um, nolan our nolan podcasts are always like extremely extremely long so yeah <laughs> our tenant one was just as long as the movie it's longer than the movie <laughs> oh my god <laughs> all right anyways Thanks, listeners yeah um so i mean at this point you know it's clear we love christopher nolan uh on this podcast and i i think the biggest nolan fan here is uh paul so i, I want to hear Dang. from I, I want to hear from you next because you purposely subjected yourself to being left out of all uh, cinephile discussions for like a week <laughs> until you're able to watch it, watch this movie in 70 millimeter IMAX. Like I would never do that. Like I need to mm. see it right away. I need, I need the movie in my brain. I want to know what happens. I want to be able to read about it and discuss it with people. Uh, but you said, no, you're like a monk. <laughs> you just... <laughs> You just had so much self-control and then you just waited so that you could get it in your brain in the proper visual format. So, yeah. Paul, what did you think of Oppenheimer? Uh, well, first of all, ding, I, I'm, I'm, I'm surprised that you were just so easily able to crown me as Nolan's biggest fan amongst the four of us. <laughs> But uh, Christopher Nolan, if you're hearing well, I, this, I, I don't think I don't think any of us watches his films on the day of his birthday every year. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> so okay, yeah. The crown is yours, man. Fair, fair point. So, Christopher Nolan, if you are listening to this podcast for some reason, I am your son. Uh, please bless me. <laughs> uh, I love you. We're our birthdays are two days apart, so I like to feel that there's some sort of uh, birthing connection between the two of us. Even though, well, actually, your your uh, your brother's uh, wife is uh, Taiwanese, right? So we're kind of connected, right? We have like several degrees of separation but anyways <laughs> um yeah so that was a painful experience uh not being able to see it opening night with obviously people who loved nolan's movies uh it was devastating for me to see job drive over an hour and tom cruise run to the theater only <laughs> for him to be denied uh you know a beautiful 70 millimeter film print so that's I ruined mean, now yeah, I mean, where to start, I guess. I mean, I think it's been pointed out in a few podcast episodes before, but our friendship between the four of us kind of started with a Christopher Nolan film at the Regal Cinema in in Irvine. That's right. Uh, Interstellar in IMAX, 70 millimeter, right? Yes, yes. Um, back in 2014. Back in 2014 when seats were not reserved, so you had to line up and it's first come first serve so we had to sit there for a long time waiting to get good seats and during that whole time we were just talking about how much we love film how much we love christopher nolan and that uh and a point that uh mike loves to make is uh his wife was just observing all of us talking and being like wow you guys really are on like another level right <laughs> um right. yeah we're speaking our own language yeah yeah so i think it's uh you know, I, I I hold Christopher Nolan not not just because he's the goaded director, but also because like the he's kind of the reason that the four of us have like you know the friendship that we share. So I definitely treasure that. Um, but yeah, so I mean, just to go into the movie, uh, I mean, last year we discussed uh, how Top Gun Maverick is the reason you go see movies, right? It's it's a cinematic experience, and watching it at home on no matter how big of a tv you have or on your phone it's it pales in comparison to seeing it in theaters and i think for me this year that's oppenheimer 
Um, and this is coming from someone who, you know, previously, I, I would say I love Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1 the most out of the four of us. But I think that Oppenheimer kind of takes the top spot over over that because it's it's so hard to just deny Christopher Nolan's like gravitational pull, right? He is just any movie he makes, it's to say that it's an event film is an understatement, right? Like he just anytime he comes out with something, like there's just a level of intrigue that is so you know, it's it's so hard to compare like most other like films or filmmakers to. I mean, the closest thing, I mean, of course, is like the MCU movies, right? Like everyone shows up for the MCU movies. And so there's a lot of discourse. It's just a lot of hype behind it. So and I think this was truly like Christopher Nolan, like showing us his his junk, you know, like just like putting his junk out there and be like, yo, this is this is this is my big dick energy. You know what I'm saying? Like you're making me blush right now. Ooh. It's just like, you know, it, it's just like I'm going to make a, a three hour movie about like a like something that is not like a very sexy topic to a lot of people. And it's just going to be a three hours of people talking. And it's like simultaneously going to be like the most gripping and like visually stimulating film of the year. It's just like, you know, it's unheard of. I feel like with most directors and you know, and you can he, label me. Oh, yeah, go ahead. And, and he bet on himself, too. He said, I want 20% of like first dollar gross or something like that. Basically, yeah. <laughs> which means before but before a cut is given to the theaters or whatever, like he gets 20%. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm like, dude, with a biopic, three hour long biopic full of talking, like, you know, like my my thought was like, I hope it I hope we can break 100 million. You know, I hope. Oh, I yeah. Yeah, 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 that was like that was like, dude, I, I don't know about this, man. This is gonna ruin his streak, but it made eighty million on the opening weekend. Mm-hmm. It doubled the projections. Um, yeah. yeah, talk about big dick energy. Like this guy, <laughs> this guy has all of it. Yeah, it's it's so crazy. And um, I mean, just speaking back on you know how I was subject, how both Job and I were subjected to the suffering that is the failing of the you know initial screening. I mean. In all confidence, I can say, like, as painful as it was, it was worth it to see it in 70 millimeter film mm-hmm. IMAX for the first time. It was, it was, in the words of our Lord and Savior, Ryan Gosling from the Barbie movie, Sublime. Uh, it was truly like an experience <laughs> to, to, to see, like, oh my God, just like from the opening frame, like seeing the screen filled all the way and like the music, like Ludwig Gorenson's score, just like, piercing through your chest it's just oh my god it's it it truly is like an other world experience at times and i think christopher nolan explains it best when he says the reason he shoots an imax is because it's like an all-encompassing experience like it's it feels like it's a 3d experience without the 3d right and i feel like just seeing it in the imax format it like really it, it was such a game changer so for some context like i watched it twice so first was a 70 millimeter IMAX. Um, and then the second time I watched it in a standard AMC showing uh, with subtitles on. So I made a point to watch it with subtitles for reasons we'll get into later, I'm sure. But yeah, I mean, as gorgeous as the film is, like it just did not hit the same watching it in a standard format. Um, it just like, it, it looks like a great movie for sure, but IMAX really takes it to the next level. So I am glad that I watched it 
even though it was very painful, like having to hear like all everyone talk about it right for a week. And I'm like, frick, man, like I, I should just go out and watch it. But, you know, I decided against it. But yeah, I mean, if I haven't made it clear already, like I liked it, man. It was it was really good. <laughs> Sublime. <laughs> yeah. All right. Thanks, Paul. Uh, Albert, your thoughts on Oppenheimer? Yeah, I mean, I, I totally echo uh, uh, what Paul said, you know, big dick energy and all and on a <laughs> atomic bomb level. And um, I, I, I think Nolan is uh, the only uh, filmmaker right now who can make a three hour movie about a, you know, theoretical physicist that I guarantee you isn't as much of a household name as he was during the 60s and 70s and keep people engaged and make, you know, a lot of money off of uh and in a format that, you know, it, it's truly like the last place for film to live right now as a movie going experience. Um, I think he's the only director who has earned the right to do something like that. Um, and we're all the better for it. He is literally protecting what means to go into a movie theater uh with each of his projects right and and they're all great movies they really are um i uh came in uh to this movie sort of already you know understanding a lot of what the story was about uh you know my first exposure to the history of the los alamos uh, laboratory came through a book by a theoretical physicist who um worked there in his youth uh, by the name of Richard Feynman. And he does appear in the movie. He's played by Jack Quaid. And uh, it, the, the book was called Surely You're Joking, uh, Mr. Feynman. But he talks about his time playing bongos and, and cracking safes while he and the team of, you know, the, United, the best scientists the United States had to offer were racing to uh, build an atomic bomb because they believed that um, Hitler, and this was sort of based on the, letter that Einstein had written to Roosevelt was going to try to get there first. And so I was kind of curious, curious to see um, what was in the movie and what was left out of the movie. And um, so I think in some places, my knowledge of the history of that whole, you know, Trinity test, did kind of, work against me in some ways because there were times where I was disappointed when I didn't see anything. Uh, that being said, I understand that this is first and foremost a bio autobiographical movie about Oppenheimer demand, not the Los Alamos uh, 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 laboratory. Uh, so in that regard, I think you know, Nolan's probably crafted um, probably the most monumental um you know, cinematic autobiographical experience um, that, you know, ever, really. Um, I don't think he made the perfect movie, but I do think he gave us the perfect movie-building experience uh, because of it. And uh, I'm, you know, so glad that, you know, a filmmaker like him exists today, really. I, just nothing but gratitude. Um, and yeah, Oppenheimer is just a stunning uh, uh piece of uh, work of achievement it really is i just we're just i just unless it's from nolan again I, I just don't think we're gonna see that type of movie um very much even going forward 
Yeah, thinking about the pandemic during 2020, like he was the only one really pushing for his film to come out uh, at the height of the pandemic. You know, this is pre-vaccinations. Uh, this is like a, a September 2020. And it's a huge testament to like how much his name is like a brand, right? His name, Christopher, it's the trailers now just say from Christopher Nolan. They don't even say the movies he's made, right? Like we, everyone knows who he is. And I remember in Orange County, the theaters weren't allowed to reopen yet because we hadn't reached a, a lower tier in terms of the COVID infection rate. Uh, but it did reopen. Theaters in San Diego were reopened uh, because they got downgraded a tier. And so I remember getting a group of friends who love Christopher Nolan, who love movies. And then we just drove down from Irvine to Carlsbad. This is the northernmost city that you know in san diego county uh that was that had nice theaters and we drove all the way down there we booked all the seats in the theater so that we could watch uh tenant um uh in back in 2020 and everyone had masks we didn't allow anyone to buy popcorn we kind of risk our health uh just for the sake of watching a christopher nolan movie when it opened you know and that that's the kind of power he has over us <laughs> over uh our poor souls um, but even more so like, you know, he, when HBO uh, and Warner brothers decided to put the entire 2021 slate of movies onto HBO max, uh, a day and date release, basically when they release the theaters, uh, they also release at the same time on HBO max. Uh, I loved how he just rebuked Warner brothers and he just left. And this movie Oppenheimer is his first film since I think insomnia which is his second film ever made, like his first film, not at Warner Brothers. And I remember like one of our friends in our group chat was saying how like, uh, should he really be doing that to, to the hand that feeds him? I'm like, no, dude, it's the other way around. He freaking feeds the freaking, <laughs> the freaking greedy studio execs, man. It's totally the other way around. Yeah, this guy's dick is so huge. <laughs> so, um, anyways, enough about Christopher Nolan. Oh, and his uh, his and his his well endowed. Um, yes, Oppenheimer feels like a culmination of everything that he's done. Like he's taken his inventive storytelling, his approach to storytelling that he's used throughout his career, and he's put it all in this one movie uh he's retelling events from the point of view of two dueling characters right he did that in the prestige he uses color and black and white to contrast subjective sequences versus objective sequences he did that in memento he's doing that here he's taking big science concepts uh from interstellar and tenant kind of incorporating it here he's cutting together the entire life of a character in a non-linear format, jumping between past and present like he did in Batman Begins. This is a three-hour film that is pretty much 98% dialogue with no action, but he still makes it somehow feel big and epic and thrilling. It's just, it's such a bold attempt at portraying this complicated man's life, but he, but what Nolan does uh, and, and how he uses all these techniques it's just astonishing, right? Uh, but I will say this, though. While it is a very engrossing and thrilling film, all the way up until the Trinity test, 
I feel like the movie kind of loses its momentum and it kind of suffers a little bit, just a little bit, uh, due to how uh, I, I think things were set up for the final acts. Okay, so overall, I, I would say this is an excellent Christopher Nolan film. This guy cannot miss, and he's still at the top of his game. But I did feel like there this is not a perfect film, and this is uh, not his best film uh, because of, I think, the final act. Kind of like Barbie, what we just talked about. I, I actually think it could be his best movie, but I guess we could well, yeah, talk let's... about that later. Yeah, or we could talk about it now. <laughs> yeah, okay, let's talk about it right now. Let's go into spoilers for Oppenheimer, starting now. No, no, you're still holding on! Let go! Let them fight. Let's talk about that. Albert, you think this is Christopher Nolan's best film? Yeah, I, th- I think, you know, like what you said, he pulled every trick out of the book to make this movie. Like every technique is used is is used in this movie. Um, it's not that the movie doesn't have weaknesses. I think it has some some glaring weaknesses for sure. Um, and we could talk about that later as well. But I just felt like for such a dense and complicated matter, he 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 managed to sort of juggle, uh, you know, all of that, all of the you know complexities and and stuff that happened in Oppenheimer's life, and still make something you could follow now. Could part of that also be like the booming soundtrack and and the in-your-face visuals keeping you awake through every line of dialogue? Yes, but it works, and um, uh, I I think he he really really uh really created a, a nar- narrative that I think um considering that all the decades it covers like it could have easily been lost by any other filmmaker. It really could have, and so that's why I I think it, it's possibly i mean for me at least his best movie ever wow do you think uh the way he tells the story like non-chronologically jumping around do you think uh that works better than if they had just gone from point a b to c you know like a, a linear fashion oh uh, yeah i think in this case it does because i think you're basically seeing a man who's on trial he's not really on trial but he's being interrogated we know this right at, during the the height of mccarthyism and and you know his political enemies are, are are gunning for him so in that regard when you put someone's life in the limelight like that you're gonna jump through all these major points and see how these themes interweave with each other not moments themes and and i i think that's a very very difficult thing for for anyone to do uh and i, I thought nolan just really just hit out of the park now i'll be honest i think it's his best movie that doesn't mean i think it's his most engaging movie for me his most engaging movie to me would be inception or yeah you know, I'll, I'll make an argument for the dark knight for me as uh in particular but um I, I i just looked at this and i was like dude this is like you know steven spielberg and jurassic park or something like that where spielberg had said he pulled every trick out of the book he knew about how to tell a story and and, and just you know almost like naturally just you know made it the way it was so i kind of got that got a very similar feeling um with oppenheimer it's almost like it's he's at the height of his powers right now I mean, I hope not, but yeah, I, I see what well, you yeah. mean. Yeah. It, it is kind of nice to see him scale back, you know, uh, like he's been doing some massive budget budgeted action films, right? Uh, obviously, 
post uh dark knight he did inception and then dark knight rises and then interstellar these are all like 150 million plus budgeted movies right dunkirk was probably really expensive also tenet super expensive um and it's interesting to see him scale back to a more like i guess you could say intimate uh, because this is about a man's life and the budget for this one is about is 100 million uh so that's it's a lot of money but it's small for what uh what this guy usually does um so still looks better than movies that are like with like in like indiana jones right they're like uh, they have like three times the budget right yeah yeah yeah. don't don't mention that movie (laughs) actually i i think dunkirk is one of his cheapest films i think the budget was about 80 million that's crazy dunkirk cost 80 million so something like that yeah so you know how much were those extras (laughs) (laughs) well remember on the beach most of them were cardboard cutouts (laughs) oh Well, you know, uh, like speaking of, I mean, okay, Dunkirk, sorry, sorry. the The range is eighty two to one hundred and fifty million. That's a, that's pretty, a huge spread. That's, that's a huge somewhat, range. Who's the Who's the accountant? Oh, <laughs> that, that, must, that must take into the effect of the marketing. No, yeah. no, no. Um, on Wikipedia, they report just the film budget. They don't. They don't include marketing for the movie. Oh, okay, interesting. Well, you know, like Dunkirk felt almost like a indie with with like the best special effects almost you know it no, no, don't so, like, don't, don't use that word don't use that word it's all practical effects <laughs> real real sets special <laughs> effects is that that's, i know, that's I know. The, I, yeah real sets practical effects you're right you're sorry yeah you're right you're right visual effects that's uh cgi right yeah yeah okay i think the point that we're trying to say is that christopher nolan makes the most out of his money like yes his, uh, his budget so he's right, somehow right. very efficient with his filmmaking, even though it's like, okay, we're gonna shoot with the most impractical cameras possible. Oh, yeah. yeah, and make yeah, or hoite von hoite Yeah, mode. yeah. Here, lug this around and, and shoot this like it's a GoPro. Four thousand pound like contraption that's supposed to capture images. Yeah, he he did say something about his his uh set designer um for this movie it was and i can't remember her name but she had a lot of experience building sets on a budget like very convincing sets so he, he really does does know how to uh, make the most out of everything he does yeah it's it's been reported that he usually comes under budget uh for his films that's how he, like efficient he he shoots and, and makes his films uh whereas a lot a lot of big blockbusters you go over budget it does make you wonder, like, how much would Tenet have made if it wasn't during the height of the pandemic? Yeah, yeah, right. totally. But you know, at the height of the pandemic, it still made like three hundred and fifty million. Which yeah, is which is kinda, crazy. Yeah, because no one was going out during yeah. that time. Like when I went to see Tenet, I was terrified. I was terrified of sitting next to the people, like you know, around me, and mm. I was just being like, I might die here in this theater. <laughs> But it was right that fun. moment, right that instant. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but I digress. Just, uh, I mean, since we're talking about the technical aspects of the film, uh, what did you guys think about the Trinity test? Because to me, again, I watched it in standard, standard format. Okay, to me, it just looked like a huge explosion. <laughs> I, I agree. I, okay. I, 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 I did expect more, but I, I thought about this. I was like, is that really the most important part of the movie? I mean, I, 
it's a turning point, but yeah, you know, I, yeah, I, I think I was okay with with the way it looked uh, in that sense. Yeah, because they made such a big deal out of how they didn't use CGI for this. Like they practically created this explosion, and it, and they said that it looked like the actual atomic explosion. But uh, you know, it eventually takes the shape of a mushroom cloud. But I think. I think I've just been conditioned so much by CGI takes on this kind of explosion that I felt a little bit underwhelmed. I don't know if you guys felt the same way. I mean, it is a smaller atomic, to be fair. It's a smaller atomic bomb explosion than than others after it, right? So, I mean, I think usually in the movie, you know, they'll like basically do a hydrogen right bomb, and 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 that's why it it looks like the way it does. But you know, I, I uh, in the I was okay with it. I really was. Yeah. yeah. I, I, sorry, Paul, go ahead. Oh, no, I, I was just going to say, it, it is kind of hard to sell your audience on, like, just want, just the biggest moment in this film is going to be a big explosion, because, I mean, if you've seen a Michael Bay film, like, uh, if I, I think my brother was telling me that he, he watched, like, Armageddon recently, and I think Armageddon starts with, like, a series of explosions. <laughs> So yeah, I, I I feel like uh you know we are very desensitized to explosions. So I mean it's no matter how authentic it's gonna be, like he didn't actually drop an atomic bomb, but if he did, like even if it was like the most authentic footage captured, like I think some of us would still be like, eh, whatever, right? Yeah. Um, but yeah, what yeah. are you gonna say, Joe? Uh, I was I was gonna say exactly that. <laughs> no, I. Uh... Yeah, I was going to actually say something similar. It's like we we almost were hyped up before the film. Like I remember all the like breathless headlines on social media. It's like Christopher Nolan dropped a real atomic bomb and we're just like what? Like are you serious? And then you know, you'd read the interview and he's like, "Yeah, we we did a practical bomb." And it was like this better be the most like freaking amazing cinematic <laughs> explosion in history. And, and they, it would never live up to what we thought it was going to be. Unfortunately, um, at least how I read it. I mean, yeah, I mean, you know. I, I thought about this from a technical point of view, like let's just say they did, they did blow something up, right? How big would it have to be? Right. And second of all, what kind of lens would you have to use to make it, uh, you know, larger than, than, then it really appeared right it had to be yeah. like a telephoto lens of some sort uh right. yeah I, i'm curious to see you know what the behind the scenes process was if, if he ever lets us see that but it's uh, uh I, I i i if you're gonna do a practical effect in this case there's there's only so much you can do without sure. violating you know some safety standards i i assume yeah that that's a good point i i almost wonder if they also didn't focus too much on the explosion itself because I think they were trying to tell the story surrounding it almost. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like I, you know, YouTube knows me completely, you know, like intimately. And so the algorithm the next day suggested real footage from the Trinity test. And so I looked at it <sighs> and it's like, that's pretty like freaking amazing to look at, you know? And I don't know that they were going to reproduce that or even show it because I think, that well almost wasn't the point of the story. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think what makes that scene so special is 
the way that it was directed like the fact that it cuts out the sound cuts out and all you hear is Killian Murphy's uh hot breathing uh yeah I mean I, I feel like that mm. whole scene that so that whole scene is very I I thought it was very effective yeah like it it shows it it's almost like it's like a most a moment like frozen in time right like this explosion is happening and then it kind of dawns on you like like oh my god what did we just do right and then con- like contrast that with like seeing all these people like all these scientists like high-fiving each other be like yeah we did it right uh you know it's yeah it's it can be very jarring and uh i mean speaking to mike's point earlier about how the third act kind of kind of slows down a little bit and kind of is more is a little bit less interesting let's talk about that yeah so i think the first time around i i would agree like there i think when it gets into like the trial like is oppenheimer really a communist type thing and then goes into like the the hearing and stuff that's when I it, it kind of lost me a little bit too. Uh, but then I, I think it wasn't until my second viewing where I really grew to appreciate the third act more. Just because like two of my favorite scenes happen post Trinity test, right? And the first one being uh, the the rally speech at the gymnasium, which I think is arguably the best scene in the entire movie. Um, yeah, I agree uh, with that. I, I thought you were yeah. going to say the sex scene. <laughs> It's like the worst <laughs> scene in the movie. That, that, <laughs> no, okay, that, we'll get that, that later. That, that, yeah, let's that go back was, to that. That scene was disappointing because I was told that Killian Murphy hangs dong, but that is uh, absolutely not true. <laughs> uh, we only see, uh, we only see, as Job quotes it, Florence Pugh's Florence Bubes. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> um, but yeah, anyways, uh, yeah. So I mean, that I think is arguably the best scene the the gymnasium scene and also the ending scene that uh that uh Oppenheimer has with Einstein yeah um so i think a lot of those moments kind of bring things full circle because at the end of the day it's like not just about the explosion and the atomic bomb but like living and dealing with the consequences that you have forever changed the world and kind of having it centered on Oppenheimer i think was a great decision um but i mean i can definitely see like people the third act kind of losing people because it's like well because i will yeah like the first two acts like the development of the bomb like everyone racing against the clock to like figure it out is it was really gripping it was like a very thrilling like it it was running at like a breakneck pace right there's like so much dialogue so many people were talking and like all of the scenes like the pacing of it felt like we were racing against the clock ourselves as we were watching right and like, you know, I, I've heard this movie described as the Avengers for people who like mathematics, uh, because like everyone, yes. it, it, like half of the characters in this film have Nobel Peace Prizes and they're just like mentioned in passing. Like some of them have one scene and it's like, oh, yeah, that guy won a Nobel Prize. And it's like, it's crazy. Yeah. But oh, yeah, um, I mean, I, I, with uh, with chemists, too, there's a Niels Bohr who developed yep, the yeah. Bohr model. Yeah. And right. There's a Heisenberg. Yeah. Yeah. yeah also, right. what the heck? Yeah, Walter oh White, right. What's he doing? <laughs> my brain yeah. was exploding. Yeah. I, yeah. There's there's a Iron lot man too. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Tony Stark. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot to unpack with uh I think all the stuff you covered there, uh Pop, but yeah, I I I for me the third act was what I was really waiting for. It's really why I was watching the movie for. Um because I, I think Right, the merit, the book itself. I mean, the movie itself is based on, you know, 
American Prometheus, right? This biography of Oppenheimer. It's apparently a good read. I, I'm definitely looking forward to reading it. But the very name American Prometheus suggests, you know, the idea of someone bringing something to people, a power that can't be contained, can't be controlled. And, uh, you know, for me, that that's the story I really, really wanted to see uh, because I, I, I did know that Oppenheimer had sort of spent the rest of his life, you know, in this sort of, oh, no, what did I do phase, right? He, he, there's, there was, he was being powered through the first two acts of this movie by, you know, his love of science, right? And, and some, somehow justifying that race to build the atomic bomb with what was going on with World War II and, and the race to it with the Germans. But once it happened, you know, it, it's a, it's a, it's a lesson that I think we're still learning today. And we've still felt to grasp with, with sort of the, the breakneck pace that technology is operating on. Um, so I, I, I was completely engrossed by third act. I, for me, those were not weaknesses. Um, of the movie, but you did bring up one weakness that I definitely did feel like there there was with the movie, and, and Mike did too. So there were two weaknesses that I I felt like the movie had. One was, you know, I think Nolan's gotten much better at writing female characters, but you kind of feel like, you know, with Jean Tatlock, it she still wasn't written very well. She was more of a femme fatale rather yes, than totally what she was in real life, right? A a physicist and also someone, you know who was dealing with their sexuality in, in the, you know, compared to these days, a pretty conservative time when, when those things probably weren't easy to be. And that, you know, it's, it's speculated that that probably may have contributed to a lot of her sort of, you know, issues mentally. And, and in, in this move, in this, uh, you know, especially with a, you know, great actor like um, Orange Pugh, it just feels like a bit of a wasted opportunity um, to tell Fuller, to give, you know, Fuller picture of, of something when we're t talking about Oppenheimer and, and his uh, his affairs, um, I told you guys that um, going to the second weakness, I felt like the movie had. You know, I feel like I had. I remember telling you guys that I felt like the more you know about the story of Los Alamos, the more the movie kind of works against you. You're right. This is the Avengers sort of gathering of the greatest scientific minds at the time. But sometimes, like, if you didn't see a guy playing bongos, like, how would I know that's Richard Feynman? And what was his actual contribution to the project? And, you know, likewise, there were several criticality incidents that happened uh, during the course of the Manhattan Project, where and I think one scientist died of radiation poisoning prior to the dropping of the bomb, and another one died after. You know, I yes, I understand that this, this story is... Um, primarily about Oppenheimer, but sort of not highlighting the, the clear and present risks they knew that radiation poisoning could have while they were making the bomb also sort of took away, um, you know, this sort of, this, 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 I felt like the narrative could have been strengthened if, if like the scientists who were starting to raise objections to what they were doing yeah, had really good I, reasons to, totally, because they knew totally colleagues agree. to put their, their lives on the line for it. So, yeah, I mean, those were sort of, you know, uh, two, 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 I don't want to say big problems, but I, they were problems for me for the, for, in the movie. Yeah, man, that you raise a really good point about, I mean, both, both points. Uh, I think those things would have made the movie stronger for sure. Um, 
I think uh, for, for me personally, the, the third act, uh, there's some things that happens in there that I, I think it could have been played up a little bit more in the first two acts so that it strengthens and keeps it as interesting and engaging and th as thrilling as what came before the Trinity test. There's the, I guess, quote unquote, big twist that uh, Lewis Krauss, played by Robert Downey Jr., that he was behind the Lewis plot. Strauss. So Strauss, oh my gosh, I'm sorry, Strauss uh, <laughs> against the, uh, he was behind the plot against Oppenheimer. I, I felt like it kind of came suddenly in the movie and I felt like it should have been a bigger reveal. Like, like, oh, spoilers for Dark Knight Rises, but Talia al Ghul sticking the knife in, uh, in you know, Batman. You know, like, I think fans of Batman know that of, oh, Miranda Tate shows up like no nah, okay that's probably Talia Al Ghul but like when the surprise comes even though we know it it was still like whoa that's crazy because like you know they were kind of setting it up for that you know in the movie and also obviously by Batman Begins uh but but the the twist on uh Strauss I, I don't know I just felt like they're like it was him the whole time you know, and I just felt like it didn't land. It didn't have the impact that I wanted it to. And when I first saw it, I was like, wait, what? He was behind what? And then so, uh, yeah, I think that got, that got kind of lost in, in the whole film because it was about so many different things. You know, it was about the Trinity test building up to that. It was about the race against uh, the Soviet Union and the Germans. Um, and it was about Oppenheimer's own personal uh, shortcomings. Um there's another character, Klaus Fuchs. This character is introduced almost in passing, right? Uh, this is a character who just shows up at the Trinity site and they're like, oh, well, we're adding this guy. He is British, but he's German, you know? Uh, and he has just one line. And then later it's revealed that he was a spy for the Russians. And that reveal was so quick. They're like, essentially, they were just like, oh yeah, by the way, the mole, the mole in Trinity test, that was, uh, that, that, that was Fuchs. Like this felt like it should have been also a bigger moment. Like there are all these things yeah. working against Oppenheimer. And then you finally, uh, it's finally revealed uh, in the third act that like all, oh, Hey, those, it was actually those, those guys the entire time. It's kind of like if they said Edward Teller was a spy, that would have been nuts. Right. So I think Klaus Fuse, this character should have been uh, elevated to that level of prominence in the film. Sorry. Uh... So, yeah, no, I uh, there's something I wanted to add to that. There there was a, a you know, they've added tiny historical tidbits that I, I was honestly thrilled to see, like in this movie. Like one is that the secretary of defense at the time of, or, of war didn't want to drop a bomb on Kyoto because it was a it was a true story. He, he did honeymoon there. With, with his wife and that was that was that was what saved Kyoto. Such and a great line. I I, I, I know it's, it's funny, it's, but it's so like infuriating. Right. And 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 um one thing I wish they brought up was that when Truman told Stalin that he was planning to drop a weapon um to end the war, uh Stalin was didn't look surprised. And I, I thought that would be you know, sort of a cool thing to mention too, because they talked about Truman meeting Stalin, but they didn't mention that Stalin's reaction was that, you know, without saying anything, I know, right? So that would have been cool to see. Yeah. Like it almost had to be played like it's a graphic novel or a comic book. Like these are actual like 
superhero type characters who you think are good guys and then they just revealed they're bad they've been working for the bad guys something like that um yeah there's, there's another character i thought was um rami malik as david l hill <laughs> this guy shows up twice before the third act he shows up doesn't say a word he keeps getting his clipboard knocked over by oppenheimer right and that's that's literally his only function in the film. And then he comes in at the very end. Uh, we don't see him again until Strauss's confirmation hearing where he delivers a blow against Strauss. It just came out of left field. Again, that character, I, I would have liked to know how he was connected with all this. It was not that clear in the movie. I think that scene kind of lost its impact. Yeah, so I, I, I want to say that I agree with uh, your points, Mike, and, and kind of what I think it's a I think it's a very fair criticism to have towards the film, but I think as I watched it the second time around, I I want to say I have an understanding of why Nolan chose not to go over those points because, I mean we're so we're so accustomed to Nolan, hit, delivering like hitting real hard on the twists right because so many of his previous movies have had like mind blowing twists where like it literally like changes the whole movie, and I I don't think that the Though the plot twist in this film was to kind of have that same effect, right? Because I think this whole film is shown in essentially in the perspective of Oppenheimer, right? So like he had no idea that Fuchs was behind her, right? So so the revelation comes to him in the same way that it would that it, can, it comes to us, right? Like, you know, Strauss is just like, oh, you didn't know, right? And he's like, What are you talking about? And he's like, Yeah, Fuchs was a spy. So and and also with uh Rami Malek's character uh David Hill I actually the more I think about that scene I, I like it because he delivers such a bombshell like statement uh but you know after doing a little bit of research um it's my understanding that he echoed the sentiments of scientists that have already felt that way for for many years because the hearing for Strauss happens like years after the the Trinity test and feel free to fact check me Albert uh, because I, I clearly don't know about it as well as you do. But um, so I, at this point, I think Oppenheimer knew that Strauss was kind of orchestrating this whole charade. And um, the fact that Lewis or David, sorry, that David Hill comes out and kind of testifies against Strauss uh, was it's not like no knowledge, but like they were all kind of, yeah, they were all kind of aware about, uh, about it at this time. And it's kind of like I, I, I enjoyed it because it's it's like David Hill is showing solidarity with him even though they didn't have a very strong relationship, but it speaks to the contributions that Oppenheimer made within the scientific community. And, you know, he's, he was also, you know, very involved in, in the community as well. So it's like, it's kind of like, almost like a story of how like a celebrity changed like someone's like a normal fan's life. Right. Where it's like, he, he made, he was such an important figure. And like, even though he didn't make the greatest impression on him and knocked his clipboard over. And, you know, of course, like they probably had interactions afterwards, but I really like how it kind of spoke to like the mythos of Oppenheimer. And it's just like, this guy is like willing to, you know, go up to bat for Oppenheimer, even though they didn't like explicitly go over like how he came to this conclusion and, and got his findings and stuff. So I think that has to be in the text of the film, though. Like, you have to show that kind of stuff and not just leave it to the audience to fill in the blanks for the movie. Um, 
I feel like the movie loses its power and its impact as a result. I, and, I mean, I know, I, I'm sorry, go on. No, Mike, I, I think they do show it, right? Uh, but, you know, I, 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 by, I, I would agree with you in the sense that is they did show that there were scientists who were sort of like concerned about what this would do, right? That was, you know, part of David Hill's testimony is that there were scientists who agreed with him at that point about, you know, what he was saying about, you know, uh, nuclear escalation, that sort of stuff. And what about and, what about uh, the uh, skepticism about Strauss and his Strauss's tension with the scientists? Right, I, I I do feel like that was there. You're right about that, but I felt like you know we were starting to see scientists question it. I I do think there could have been a stronger tie from that point to to the hearings. To your point, I I so I mean I think it was there. I just don't know if the tie the tie was as strong as it should have been. Yeah, I think he does leave crumbs, uh, but I think we need a little bit more than crumbs. That's just, yeah, that's my opinion. Um, I think it's, I think he does a good job though in casting these big name actors because it's a lot easier to track. I think when you recognize the faces, you know, it's kind of like showing this person's important, like uh, Jack Quaid, right? He's he's not like a list, but uh, I feel like they casted him. Uh, and, and he's recognizable to most audiences so that he's like, oh, he's like that kind of tier of a character. Yeah. Whereas Rami yeah, Malik's like, hey, you see this guy getting his clipboard knocked over? Like, pay attention because, you know, he's important for a reason. Or even, uh, I kind of made a list of all these former uh, former Chris Nolan actors who came yeah. back for this one, like uh, like Casey Affleck for uh, Pash, Boris Pash. Like, what he was name? great. Yeah, yeah. Like, he shows up and he, he he just for one scene, right? He was he was from Interstellar, um, but then our you already know how important this character is because because of who Nolan casts, right? Uh, we got what David, was, yeah, David uh, Desmal. How do you say his last name? Desmalchian. Yeah, Desmalchian. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Basically, the guy impersonating a cop with the Rachel Dawes name badge in Dark Knight, like he shows up as a <laughs> yeah, Borden, uh, Kenneth Branagh. Kenneth Branagh, right, right. from yeah. Dunkirk and Tenet. Uh, dude, I, <laughs> Tom Conti from Dark Knight Rises. Right, yeah. That, I, I thought that was when the moment That's Albert great. Einstein started talking, I was like, what, dude? It's yeah. the freaking, it's the guy from Bane's prison. Yeah. The guy who punches like, Batman's yeah. spine back in. Yeah. 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 Uh, it, um, so that's a, great uh line by the way uh such a great sort of like uh meeting of the minds right from the oh totally from the yeah. scientists you know who made it possible for people to think about the splitting of the atom <laughs> yeah, yeah 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 um gotta mention uh matthew Modine from dark Knight rises as well uh and my favorite my personal favorite oh this is so good gary oldman as President yes, Truman, Truman. <laughs> that was great. Great oh, scene, by the way. Yeah, the way he reveals it too. The the way the camera kind of sweeps over the room. You're like, oh my gosh, who's it gonna be? Who who's it gonna be? Who's it gonna play the president? And then you see him, and you're like, who is that? And he starts mm. talking, and I'm like, holy crap, it's freaking Commissioner Gordon. <laughs> <laughs> that that was the one cameo that was ruined for me before I saw the movie. Like I I, uh... I knew that. Gary Oldman had played President Truman. I was like, oh man. Oh man, I wish you yeah. didn't know. Because I had no idea he was in the movie. And yeah, same. Uh, yeah, so 
you know, Paul, before before you saw the movie, we we were hanging. We actually watched Barbie, and then we were talking in between uh, before you went to go see Oppenheimer. You did the Barbenheimer thing, and you asked me like, what was your favorite like supporting performance? And this was it. I didn't want to tell you, but yeah. Oh right, right. right I yeah. loved uh, Gary Oldman uh, in this role. Like I, he just chewed up the scene. He was so mm-hmm. good. And then like, uh, I mean, what his character, what President Truman says too in that scene is terrifying. You know, they don't care about the guy who made the bomb. They care about who dropped it. Yeah. Right. It's true. He's absolutely right. Yeah. That's right. And the way terrifying. he takes out yeah. his handkerchief and like gives it to him. It's just a, a delicious performance. Yeah, totally agree. I, and yeah, I, I wish that that. That cameo wasn't ruined for me, but yeah, it, that scene still hit really hard. Uh, admittedly, I will say I was sitting with one of our friends uh, during the movie, and the biggest cameo that like turned our heads, and we we looked at each other, was like, "What the freak?" Was like when Josh Peck showed up. We were like, "Drake and Josh? <laughs> Why the, from Nickelodeon? Why is this guy in this movie?" That was uh that was our moment. We we're like, "Huh." <laughs> So he's the one who presses the bomb or presses the button. Uh, and uh, that was just a really funny moment for us. But hey, was shout that, out to Josh Peck, man. Was that the only scene that he was in? I mean, he no, had that he, scene and then yeah. the scene like when they recruited him and he was like, oh right. my God. And like that, right. that was like his one line. <laughs> but uh, yeah, that was a funny scene. Uh, I'm embarrassed by it. I don't know who this is. <laughs> oh, that's because Drake, hey, Drake and Josh was uh, beyond your time, man. Yeah. That was like such a good yeah. show on Nickelodeon. Thanks he, for he even did the me. face, you know, like the Josh <laughs> face, and I was like, oh, "Come on, oh!" <laughs> it took me out. I'm with you, Mike. I uh... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was like, the first thing I'm thinking about is, "Hey, Albert, do you know who this is?" <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was very jarring because you would never expect him to be in a Christopher Nolan movie, but. Um, well, uh, I mean, Josh Hartnett, right? When he showed up, I didn't. I barely. Oh, yeah. re- it was good barely, to see him. Yeah, barely recognized him. And then when he starts yeah. talking, I'm like, "Wow, he he's aged well to the point where like he like he's very believable in that role as it like an academic." But like 20 years ago, no way. Yeah, yeah his performance was so like inviting, and it's just like it, it felt like he's been around for so long, you know, that veteran experience. But it's like. I legit haven't seen a movie from you in like 20 years, man. It's like, it's crazy, but it, it was a very welcome uh, return and just like seeing how well he's aged. And it's like, it, it makes you think like, how come he hasn't been offered like more roles, you know? Cause yeah, I thought he, he was had great. a hard time. Yeah. He had a hard time. I think, especially after he was rumored to be in Superman or involved uh, in, in some capacity with that particular project I, I think he he may have like taken a break for off from hollywood for a little bit so it is really really good to see him again it really was yeah 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 Glad to have him back and, and and especially in a role like this like he's showing gravitas as an actor mm-hmm. uh i i just wanted to highlight because we haven't talked about them yet like i think my two favorite performances outside of killian murphy as oppenheimer probably belong to Emily Blunt as Kitty Oppenheimer, uh, who plays Oppenheimer's wife, and also uh, Benny Safdie as yeah. Edward Teller. Yeah, uh, I yeah, right. I was like, dude, Benny Safdie's a really good actor, man. Like he was so talented, and like if you didn't know that, like, and and I feel like if you didn't know that he is the father of the hydrogen bomb, which is like, like 
way more explosive than the atomic bomb, right? Like his character has a lot of holds a lot of weight, right? And a lot of significance in the scientific community. Uh, yeah. So th there's like big expectations for like playing him. And like, you know, first time around, I had no idea who he was. I was like, oh, hey, it's Benny Safdie. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I think he carries the performance like really, really well. So good. Um, and yeah, I, I really liked Emily Blunt's character as well, because, you know, she obviously does not fit the female mold, uh, like the conventional female character. Uh, she's very like outspoken. She's very like it's very easy for her to kind of like, you know, like smack Oppenheimer upside the head is like when he's like, you know, not acting right, you know, and I, I feel like she carried that performance really, really well. Um, and yeah, I mean, it was also just nice to see her in, in a dramatic performance again and, and like in, in like a, you know, a solid movie. So it was just yeah, like every performance, I was just like very pleased. Yeah, thanks for highlighting them because yeah, I mean those are really great performances as well. Um, and it just speaks to how how much talent is in this. It's chock full of talent. This film, it's, I mean, you just rifled off a list of names, but, I mean, someone one of you guys mentioned the, the scene uh, in the gym when when they're having when he's giving his speech and everyone's cheering, yeah, like everyone all the extras in there were acting their their butts off too you know and that actually is the enduring image for me from this movie is like yes it's like horror film level like intensity and it's it's like terrifying and and the way uh the camera like gets real close in and starts to do the the like the uh scarecrow shake in the background i don't know what you call that effect uh in film yeah making. Um, no, I... it's like that when every, the walls of your psyche are closing in it it's like it's just so expertly done it's chef's kiss seriously and one of the great scenes that nolan has ever made i would say yeah. also speaks uh and and uh the importance of of extras right that's yes. that's that takes time that's work and once AI, again ai couldn't have have generated that right yep that scene so pay your pay your actors right your hair. <laughs> yeah. yeah but anyways um i also wanted to uh i don't know how you guys felt about it. and they didn't overtly sort of show you anything about what happened to the victims of the atomic blast I, i've always had you know sort of very mixed feelings about the bombing itself you know because i also think about the stories my grandparents told me about having to endure you know um you know bombings during that time from from the japanese but at the same time it's like gosh so many people just wiped out you know their lives and it changed it, uh, the survivors um you know outcasts and uh, it was hard for me not to think about you know you know i like years ago i, I they uh, did a visit to the Hiroshima uh, uh, Peace Museum and they sort of have, I don't know if any of you three have been there, but, you know, they kind of show you sort of items from from the aftermath of that bombing, you know, a wall where someone's shadow is sort of like stained on it, you know, and they don't exist, but the shadow is and, and you know, the, the blood that's sort of been, uh, the, the skin that sort of peeled off and sort of got stuck to their clothes. It's, it's a, uh, it's horrifying stuff, but uh, it, it was hard for me not to think of those images, even even though it wasn't being shown, which was, uh, I, I think, just the face of 
of Oppenheimer reacting to, to uh, you know, the result of what he did is, uh, uh, I mean, hats off to killing. I know he wears a lot of hats, literally, and he's starting a new uh, fashion trend, apparently. But Gillian Murphy, it's just he—he he is. This movie just doesn't work without him. It's—he's, yep. I, you know, I—I—I'm not. It's the year's still early, but I, I would be personally ticked off if he didn't, you know, at least nab a Best Actor nomination mm-hmm. uh, for what he did with this role. All right. So on that note, um, what what are the Oscar chances? For this movie, what do you guys think? I think it's pretty high. I mean, best picture, be, best director, best. You know what? I gameplay. nothing. I feel because Nolan directed it. The most important Oscar, I feel like, would have to be Nolan winning, winning it for best director. Yeah. Finally, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And I feel like the the writer strike will definitely play a part into that because I think a lot of things are probably going to get delayed. So. I don't know if that, you know, even I don't think he necessarily needs a lack of competition to be, you know, more like a shoe in for at least a nominee. Right. I think at at the least he'll he'll get some nominations. But, you know, we've talked about this before in, in our group chats and stuff. But but Nolan has always been like someone that is very widely loved and accepted by the general audience. But I think when it comes to critics, like they enjoy his movies, but I, I do feel like there's a bit of pretension when it comes to reviewing his movies because it's like, oh, it's so mainstream. Like he he doesn't have like the they true, make like, money. Yeah, <laughs> and they make money, yeah. right? Yeah. Right. And uh executives are executives love that, but critics hate that, right? It's just like it, it, you know, I feel like critics always want to use their platform to be like, my tastes are better than yours, and that's why Nolan doesn't deserve to win so and so award. And uh, you know, you could you could crown me the conspiracy theorist of this because I am his son. But I mean, I just I don't know. I, I every year I'm always like, you know, I feel like he deserves to get like some love, some hardware, Oscar hardware. But I mean, who knows, right? Uh, I I do think this movie should get nominated for like all the major awards, like yes. sound mixing, cinematography, screenplay, directing, special like, effects. Yeah. yeah, I think it should get for special effects because I I did think how did they do that. I haven't thought like that about a movie in a while. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. It's only, he's only been, his projects have only been nominated five times in the Academy, which yeah. just seems in, criminally low. And like his, the snubbing of Dark Knight, like essentially changed the way that the Academy like votes, right? Right. Because it didn't get nominated. So they, they widened the number of nominees. Yeah. Yeah, I, I feel like historically, there. I mean, Spielberg was in a very similar position where I think he got snubbed for the color purple, like even though it was nominated for all the big awards, and and I think people felt very similarly about whether he'd ever win any a, a best director until you know Schindler's List. So uh, I, I'm really hoping that Nolan doesn't have to wait too long um, at this point in his life for for an accolade like that. Yeah, it. I mean, and it, we could go further back even. Like, I mean, Leo only won one, you know, in his career so far, and that's just kind of how the voting works, I guess. Is like, oh, he'll they'll get theirs one day, and just never get there until much later. Yeah, for sure. Especially because the Revenant, like his win in the Revenant, definitely felt more like 
like an honorary award. I mean, I thought he was great. Like a lifetime achievement. Yeah, like a lifetime achievement. Yeah, because like he's had better performances, but they just gave it to him for that one because, you know, he had to eat some raw liver. So I'm like, you know, I was all for it. But (laughs) at the same time, I'm like, yeah, like I hope that they recognize the big dick energy. Right. It's like just just give him some some of some of that hardware love. You know, it's just. uh, Yeah, I mean, and even if it's not Nolan, you know, like Killian Murphy was so good. I mean, top three thousand yard stare of all time in movie history. I mean, he's Mm -hmm. so good at it. And like, uh, I I don't know if you guys have seen Peaky Blinders, but I mean, Thomas Shelby is like one of the coolest TV show characters ever. Um, And like, I think you you see some of the Thomas Shelby isms in his performance as Oppenheimer, but, you know, obviously a, a, a lot more nuanced in you know what he has to wrestle with but his performance was fantastic yeah it's great to see him in a lead role right in a, in a huge ensemble film like this and but like the entire thing is carried on his shoulders uh it's it's, it's pretty awesome so very happy for him and i i hope he gets some love uh this award season um so just to wrap things up um you know, post Dark Knight Rises, Christopher Nolan has done a sci-fi film, then some kind of like prestige World War II era film, and then another sci-fi film, and then another prestige World War II era film. So that begs the question, he's, is he going to go back to sci-fi next? I mean, we'll see. I really hope so, because whenever mm-hmm. he does sci-fi or something creative or, or like a brand new concept. Basically he's essentially creating new IPs. Um, I would love to see that. Um, if he can he needs somehow... to do Star Wars, he needs to do Star Wars. He didn't roll <laughs> out. He needs to do Star Wars. Star Wars <laughs> needs it. It needs to feel cinematic again. I can't think of any other person to, to best make Star Wars feel cinematic again. It really? needs, it needs, it, yeah, I needs to feel, it needs to feel like big again. I feel like it hasn't felt like that in a while. I, I want, he didn't roll it out. Yeah, I want him to do it. Yeah, well, I, know, I, I James Mangold might might get fired by Kathleen Kennedy because of the low box office again. This is just how it goes, right? Maybe Chris mm. Nolan steps in. Here's the difficult thing, though. There's another franchise right now that's kind of like in limbo, or it's you know it just recently concluded with its main actor. Oh, and they are trying to find the next actor to portray this character. This really famous character. Um, and this is a franchise that he has long said that he would love to take part of. And, uh, but the thing, the, the you know, one caveat is he has to have 100% creative control. And I'm not sure if the producers of James Bond are willing to, <laughs> to kind of oh. let that, let him dictate all that. that. Obviously casting, right? He would probably want to cast James Bond. And absolutely i i don't yeah. know if it sounds like they're kind of far along in the process but if he can somehow get in there and like just whip it out you know and just <laughs> slap him around with it <laughs> show him who's boss i didn't expect to have so much phallic discourse uh around, uh, around oppenheimer but uh and not even about what we thought it would be about <laughs> This episode is definitely getting the uh, explicit. Oh, man. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. I'm very curious to see if he really will make a Bond film because, I mean, 
it's you, you can argue that like a number of his films already have been Bond films, right? Like Inception and Tenet, like that's like his like that's like his audition tape almost, where it's like this is this is what kind of how I would tackle Bond, you know, if if I had creative control. So that would be yeah. very interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with what you said about Tenet and, and, and Inception. But, you know, this is weird for me to say because I just said I really wanted him to do Star Wars. And I guess you could make the argument for this for Star Wars, too. But I almost feel like he might be too good for James Bond. You know, I, I don't know why. <laughs> I, I, it doesn't feel like a franchise where he, 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 he can say more about it than what's already been said. You know, I mean... It wasn't a even ride, but the Daniel Craig James Bond series did a really great job of sort of telling the story of what a Bond in this age would be. Uh, you know, what would that Bond's place be, right, in our modern times? So, you know, if, if he is going to do Bond, I hope it's not just to make it big, it's because he had something to say. So, yeah, and hypothetically, it's like, would he only do one movie or would he do like an entire series? And that's, that's the tricky part to me because it's like, I, I would be pretty down to see him do a bond movie, but I wouldn't want him to be tied down to the franchise because yeah, absolutely. His, his mind is too precious to be tethered to a character that, you know, is largely like, we, we, we know what we're going to get. Right. So I don't know. It's uh not to not to trash on Marvel too much, but it's kind of like when uh, I see like an actor that I really like, like get casted for a Marvel movie, and I'm like, and <laughs> like I was looking forward to them to to seeing them be in like a bunch of other things, you know, they're up and coming actor, and then Marvel snaps uh, snags them, and I'm like, oh okay, I guess he'll be in the in this stuff for the next ten years. <laughs> yeah, I know I know what you mean. Uh, there's a part of me that wants to see just him do one movie and then just set up the franchise but that guy does not want to like like yeah. you know yeah so, yeah yeah all right well i think uh we've reached the end of our discussion on oppenheimer thank you so much for listening to our double feature special on barbenheimer we hope you enjoy the episode and discussion and we'll see you next time we're not done yet no the supreme leader is wise I'm sure you are. Blow that piece of junk out of the sky!